Exodus chapter 12. Let's begin today's service, if we may, in verse 1. And the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be unto you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. In the UK, April is the beginning of the financial year. And here, 12, 1 and 2, the first month of the year is going to be ABIB. A-B-I-B, which can fall late March going into early April. And here, verse 1, the Lord is speaking to Moses, quite likely during the days of darkness, uh, which we spoke about during the last chapter or two. And if you think of Israel, you think of a very powerful nation. If you go back to 1945 to around 1948, the Israelis were in dire need, and they reached out to an American called David Mickey Marcus, Colonel Marcus, and Colonel Marcus went to Israel, 47-48, and helped train up the Jews, the Israelites. Go back to 42-43-44, you've got General Wingate, a British general who was also helping the Israel, uh, the Israeli army out. Both are worth speaking about and also respecting but here, 12, 1 and 2, the Lord is speaking to Moses, and this is the commencement of Israel's commonwealth, Israel's constitution, which, for the record, the UK does not have. This month, verse 2, being Abib, also in the New Testament referred to as Nisan, shall be unto you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. So this is a very important point in the history of Israel. They've gone from being in bondage to being Pharaoh's slaves, to now being their own masters. And on top of that, like I say, they've got a brand new constitution. Look at verse 3, if you will. Speak ye unto all the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth day of this month they shall take to them every man a lamb, according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for an house. And if the household be too little for the lamb, let him and his neighbour next unto his house take it, according to the number of the souls. Every man, according to his eating, shall make your count for the lamb. So for the New Testament, we know from John chapter 1, when John the Baptist saw the Lord Jesus Christ walking towards him, he would say to his own disciples, Behold, the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. But it's like this, in essence, if you lived back in the Old Testament, if you lived right up until the time of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you wanted to please the one true eternal God, you had to come to him via a sacrifice. And you might say this, you might say, well, I don't like the idea of offering an animal sacrifice. You may say that you are an animal lover. You may say you are a vegan or a vegetarian. Well, that may be all, all good and well, but it's either you or the animal. Sure, you can sacrifice yourself, if you will. You can arrive at the great white throne judgment and offer yourself as a great man or a great woman. But if you've got any sense... You want someone or something to uh, be offered on your behalf. In the UK, if you want to take out a loan, if you want to hire a private uh, property, the landlord can ask you a couple of questions. And he will ask you one question, and he will say to this, he will say, do you earn over £15,000 a year? And if you say no, he has every right to ask for a guarantor. And the guarantor will underwrite your rent. The same would be true if you wanted a loan for a car or a mortgage. The bank, the building society, you want collateral. Now, some of you people have no problem with that. Some of you people have no problem getting collateral or requesting help from a guarantor 
to underwrite your rent because if you go into arrears, the guarantor has to pay the rest of your rent until the end of the contract. If you take out a mortgage or loan for a car and you default on such, collateral is needed and sometimes, again, a guarantor is needed to uh, stop you losing your house. Well, for the Old Testament, it was an animal. For the Old Testament, it would be a lamb. And on top of that, it would be according, verse 3, to the house of their fathers, a lamb for an house. A lamb for a house of people, for a family. And verse 4 again, and if the household be too little for the lamb or too poor for the lamb. In other words, they couldn't afford to purchase a lamb. Let him and his neighbor next unto his house take it according to the number of the souls. Every man according to the eating shall make your count for the lamb. This is what we call corporate worship, corporate service. Now for the New Testament, we on an individual basis appropriate the atonement. And I'll explain that later. But back in the Old Testament, right up until the end of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, everything was done through corporate worship. You had a corporate system of priests. You had a corporate place of worship like the temple. You had a priesthood like the Aaronic priesthood. You had a system in place. That's what we call biblical religion. For the New Testament, that's all done away with. For the New Testament, Jesus Christ is our high priest. Our bodies are the temple of the Holy Ghost. And we can worship in numbers of two or three. Verse 5, your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. Ye shall take it out from the sheep or from the goats, and ye shall keep it up unto the fourteenth day of the same month. And the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. Now it's gone from a lamb, verses 3 and 4, to your lamb. Is Jesus Christ your lamb? Have you personally received him? Have you personally called on his name? Have you personally appropriated the atonement? This is where it gets very personal. You may say, well, you respect the concept or the principle of Christ. That's not good enough. You have to reach out with your own hands. You have to believe on him. You have to receive him yourself. And on top of that, from verse 5, your lamb shall be without blemish, which for Jesus Christ means without sin. A male, not a female, a male of the first year, not transgender, a male of the first year. Jesus Christ is referred to as the firstborn of God. You shall take it out from the sheep or from the goats. Could have been a kid. Could have been a lamb. Jesus Christ, of course, is the Lamb of God. And ye, all of you, shall keep it up until the 14th day of the same month, 14th of April. And the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. I'm going to say this, that the congregation, the Sanhedrin, killed the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says how the Jews crucified the Lord Jesus Christ. Elsewhere, he says the sins of the world were put on the Lamb of God and how it pleased the Father to bruise the Son. But the Jews were the people of God. The Jews still are the people of God. And they decided to crucify him. Paul says over in First Corinthians that had they known he was the Prince of Peace, they wouldn't have done it. And yet elsewhere, it's my belief that they did know who he was. And yet, in spite of that, they still killed him. Mm-hmm. But here the whole congregation of Israel will kill this Lamb in the evening. Now, for the biblical Jew, their morning starts at 6 a.m. Whereas for the Gentiles, our morning starts at midnight. So you are looking at the Jewish timetable, Jewish calendar. And here they have to keep it until the 14th day of the same month. They have to keep it for a period of time to make sure that it is a good, upright lamb without blemish or spot. Jesus Christ is 
without blemish or spot. The church, thanks to the Lord's imputation, is without spot and blemish. So you see time after time what the Jews were doing back in the Old Testament is picturing what would take place in the New Testament. And again, you can bypass the Lamb, Old Testament, the Goat, Old Testament, you can bypass the Lamb of God, the New Testament, you can bypass Christ, our Passover, New Testament, and arrive in eternity, and tell Almighty God what a great person you were. And if you do that, you will know within five seconds that you've made the biggest mistake of your entire life. Because he will say to you, well, were you on the same par as my beloved son? Did you deny yourself 24-7? Did you abstain from all evil thoughts and appearances of evil? Did you fulfill the law to the letter? Did you heal the sick, walk on the water? Did you atone for the sins of the world? And were you buried and after three days raised up from the dead? And of course you know that you didn't do any of those things. And this goes back once again to having to receive, if you've got any sense, the atonement. Could be a goat, could be a lamb, back in the Old Testament. That wouldn't take away your sins. That would simply cover your sins until the Lamb of God would arrive. And that's why from the Old Testament right up until the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ, the righteous that died would go into the ground, Abraham's bosom, and they would wait for the Messiah to come and take him up to heaven. Verse 7. And they shall take of the blood and strike it on the two side posts and on the upper door posts of the houses wherein they shall eat it take the blood the precious blood of the lord jesus christ we are saved we have been redeemed we have been forgiven of our sins based solely and exclusively on the precious blood of the lord jesus christ and that's why so many religions don't like the idea of the blood of christ that's why so many religious people hate the idea of what we call substitutionary atonement they despise it And they want to dress up, they want to do religion. In fact, this past weekend, yesterday to be precise, a man called Aitken, a very powerful man in his day, he was the chairman of the Conservative Party under John Major, going back to Mrs Thatcher when she was Prime Minister, and he got in trouble with the law, uh, spent some time in prison, had a conversion during his time in prison. I'm not sure he would say he was born again, but he found religion, as they say, and yesterday he became a deacon in the Church of England and he was all dressed up, and the female Bishop of London uh, ordained Mr Aitken, Jonathan Aitken, and it looked like a joke, something out of a circus, all dressed up. But of course, this is what religious people like to do. They like to dress up, they like to put on a show, because for them, they think their works are important. For them, they think they have something to offer the Lord, and of course they don't. In the New Testament, there is no priesthood. In the New Testament, there's no place of worship. There's no temple. There's no synagogue, per se. There's no high priest. Our high priest is Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ is in heaven. We don't dress up on a Lord's Day service. We dress like everyone else would dress. Now, you can dress smartly for the Lord's Day. I know some brothers like to wear ties, and some women like to wear dresses. Nothing wrong with that. But, I mean, dressing up with a mitre on your head or a dog collar... Dressing up like the Old Testament uh, system is still in place, I'm going to say, is an abomination. Seven again. And they, not just one person, but they, like a group of people, shall take of the blood concerning the lamb and strike it. Cross-reference that to Isaiah 53. The Lord would strike his son. Strike it on the two side posts and on the upper door post of the houses. 
There's a picture of the cross. You've got the top of the cross. You've got the left-hand side, the right-hand side of the cross. And Jesus Christ will be nailed to a cross. Wherein they shall eat it. So you've got a group of Jews, religious Jews, believing Jews, finding an animal like a lamb, leaving the animal, the lamb, in their property for a period of time, four days. And during that time, they would observe the lamb to make sure it was without spots, it was without blemish, it didn't have any kind of a marker. In fact, some years ago, there was a woman ordained into the Church of England. I think maybe she was from Cheshire or Manchester, I forget where she was from, and she has a wart on the side of her face. And I thought, that's in violation of the Old Testament, which of course isn't for today. But it was interesting to note this woman with this wart of some kind. And when I saw a picture on the news, I thought, that's what people see. They see a woman with a wart on her face and they immediately zoom in on the wart and they don't think about what she is supposed to represent. Now for the Old Testament, if you were a priest, if you were a Levite, you weren't allowed to have anything that could be uh, seen as a distraction to your ministry because when people worship in a group, they want to have their minds focused on what they are there for. If you've got someone dressing up inappropriately, it's not acceptable. And if you've got somebody with a wart or somebody who doesn't, who doesn't quite look right, it is going to cause distraction. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? Of course. Seven again and I move on. And they shall take of the blood and strike it on the two side posts and on the upper doorpost of the houses wherein they shall eat it. So you're either the house of Moses or the house of Jesus. You're either saved or unsaved. If you wanted to be in with the Lord, if you wanted to enter into a covenant with the Lord, and here, 12, 1, 2, 3, and beyond, is the commencements of a new covenant, this is what you would have to do. You would have to literally find an animal, store the animal, sacrifice the animal, and once you've done that, take the blood, and like I say, strike it, put it on the two side posts of the upper door of the houses, wherein they shall eat, so on and so forth. Look at verse 8. And they should eat the flesh in that night, roast with fire and unleavened bread, and with bitter herbs shall they eat it. Herbs, of course, meaning vegetables, and the term bitter pictures the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. It says he went to the cross despising the shame. Because an animal, a innocent animal, had been picked out of its community and stored and later sacrificed, that meant something. And for Jesus Christ, it was a bitter sacrifice for him. Yes, he rejoiced in it. Yes, he came to do just that. But it was still bitter for him. He was sinless, the eternal word. And when the incarnation took place, he would be born to a woman, being Mary, a sinful woman. And of course, that mixed in with being raised in, or being born in Bethlehem and raised in Nazareth was a big deal. On top of that, he is witnessing in the flesh, people sinning, people behaving like reprobates and it must have been very difficult for him eat the flesh in that night now again for the jews when it comes to the day and the night it's worth reminding ourselves what genesis says it says the evening and the morning were the first day the evening and the morning were the second day the evening and the morning were the third day the jews count their day from evening into morning their day begins at sunset their morning begins, like I say, at six o'clock in the morning, whereas our morning, our day, if you will, begins at midnight. And here, they have to eat the flesh in that night. They have to roast it with fire and unleavened bread 
and with bitter herbs shall they eat it. No vegetarians present, no vegans present, and we spoke about this some weeks ago. A lot of people, a lot of young people get into the vegan movement, and that leads into the uh, atheist movement, and that can also lead into the occult movement, which can also lead into the lesbian movement, the LGBT movement, a very powerful and promiscuous movement. And once you find yourself in such a movement, you can be there for a long time. But here's an interesting thing. I caught a clip last night of a group of conservatives going to a homosexual event in Los Angeles. A lot of people present, and those events take place all over the world. We have it in Manchester every August, and Israel, to their shame, have it as well. And I watched this group, or these, these group of Christians, conservatives, going around speaking to people and asking why they were there. And one of the questions that would be asked or was asked uh, to the grown-ups is, what do you think about all the children being here? Mm-hmm. Do you think it's right to indoctrinate the children? Do you think it's right to allow the children to see all the flesh on display? And of course, that wasn't the sort of question that they were expecting to be asked. No decent answer was given. But here's the thing. If you are a typical man, shall we say, in a public place, and you decide to expose yourself to a child or children, the police will be called you'll be arrested, quite naturally, and put on the sexual offenders list. But you can go to one of these events around the world, see some pretty awful scenes, and that seems to be legal. Now, what is going on here? How can it be possible that men and women can, well, I won't say dress up, but put on a show, expose their flesh, children can see it at such an event, that's okay, quote-unquote, that's legal, quote-unquote, and yet if a child is heading through their local park or down their high street... And a man, or even a woman, exposes themselves to such a child, and the child phones the police, the police are going to act on it. Isn't it strange? So strange how things are. Look at eight again. And they should eat the flesh in that night. Eat all of it, not just some of it. Roast with fire and unleavened bread. And with bitter herbs shall they eat it. This is a major meal. This takes time to prepare. You have to invite friends and family into your home. Treat the animal, because at this point, this is how the Lord is going to cover their sins. But praise the Lord, from Psalm 32, 1, it says, How happy is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Their sins were covered, but not forgiven. Their sins weren't forgiven until the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, died on the cross. This is a temporary atonement. In a sense, this is the guarantor scenario returning. And like I say one more time, somebody decides to underwrite your mortgage or the loan on your car or the rent on your property. And they say this, they say, well, if such and such uh, is unable to pay their rent or their mortgage or the loan back, I will step in and underwrite it. And many guarantors have done that over the years. There was a story in the paper that I read a few months ago of a couple in the West Country. I say they were late 50s, early 60s, and they decided to help their daughter out. And they gave their daughter, I think it was £50,000 for a loan, or it was I forget what it was for. It could have been for her education. She was at university, I think. And they gave her £50,000. They remortgaged their home with the belief that their daughter would pay it back when she got a good job. And she turned around and said, no, it wasn't a loan. It was a gift. And they said, no, it was a loan. And she said, no, it was a gift. This thing went to court and they lost. The parents lost. And I read that story about a year ago. I thought, what a terrible story. And there's, photograph, there's a photograph of the couple in the paper and a picture of their daughter and they've named the daughter in question. And I thought that woman would have to live with herself, 
Her parents are going to have to raise £50,000, which is a lot of money. Uh, they named her, like I say, they stopped short of naming where she worked. But you can be sure of this, that her work colleagues would have read about that in the paper, would have been appalled and shocked to have seen that, since she may have lost her job as a result of that. But that's the sort of thing. The bank of mum and dad, if you will, step forward, underwrite their child's debts, and here the animal, in a roundabout way, has been cited to underwrite your sin, to cover your sin, and the law says, that's okay, just keep sacrificing the animal until my son arrives and covers it permanently. But you might say one more time, this is vulgar, James. You may say, I don't like the idea of this. You may say, I love animals. You may say, I work with an animal charity, I work with a donkey retreat, or I do this, or I do that. Well, that's all very well, if that's who you are, and that's what you are, but that's all the Lord is going to accept. Either the animal, covering your sin, or you can cover your own sin. I'll say this also as a quick footnote, going back to the LGBT community, and a good number of those people, not all, but a good number of those people becoming hardline vegans, and that becomes their own religion, they will fight tooth and nail to defend the animal in question, but they have no interest, little interest in abortion. Interesting, isn't it? Look at verse 9. Eat not of it raw, nor sodden at all with water, but roast with fire, his head with his legs, and with the pertinence thereof. This is the complete reverse of how the Egyptians would sacrifice their animals and eat their sacrifice. Eat it with fire, but not raw. The Egyptians would eat their sacrifice raw, nor sodden at all with water. Jesus Christ would say on the cross, I thirst. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? So here, nine again, eat not of it raw. You can't eat it raw, unlike the Egyptians. Nor sodden at all with water. No water is allowed. Not even a pinch of water, not even a dose of water. But roast with fire. Almighty God would accept the sacrifice of the Lamb of God. And when he died on the cross, he would say it is finished. And the Lord would accept that. His head with his legs and with the pertinence thereof. You were told to eat everything. You were told to leave nothing. You were told to do this because, again, sin costs something. That poor animal has had to cover your sin. The Lord Jesus Christ has had to forgive you of your sin. There's no other way for this atonement or any atonement to work. And here, this is a very bloody sacrifice. This is something which you had to do. And this would be the beginning of the Passover. For the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 5, Jesus Christ is our Passover. But, of course, we don't physically, literally keep the Passover, we do so in a spiritual sense. Look at verse 10. And ye shall let nothing of it remain until the morning, and that which remaineth of it until the morning ye shall burn with fire. So you would eat it straight away, around night time or in the evening, like twilight, not dawn. The elders were meant to do this because there is no ironic priesthood, and should something remain until the morning, it was to be burnt with fire. Because once you sacrifice the animal and leave it open for the elements, the flies are going to get to it, it becomes unclean. And people that eat unclean meat get sick, and people that eat unclean meat can even die. 11. And thus shall you eat it with your loins girded, your shoes on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. So you are told to eat it with your loins girded, a belt around your waist, Shoes on your feet and a staff in your hand. Who does that today? No one does that today. But for then, this was how it was meant to be. And ye, all of you, shall eat it in haste. Because they are about to leave Egypt. They are about to go into the promised land. This was a major exodus. 
and go back to Colonel Marcus. It was a major thing for him to leave America, go to Israel, help the Israelis get on their feet, help the Israelis to repel the Islamic invasion, uh, Islamic aggression. America will be the first country to recognize Israel. And tragically and ironically, Colonel Marcus would die in Israel in 1947, shot by friendly fire. He was uh, mistaken. It is the Lord's Passover, like the Lord's Supper, like the breaking of bread. So again, you can see how this is being presented. Moses and Aaron are speaking to the elders, pre the Aaronic priesthood. The elders are going to take the lead, men, not women. And it's down to them to find the animal in question, check it and store it until the appropriate time. And when they do so, it's feast time. Get your friends and family in, feast on the lamb. For the New Testament, we feast on Jesus Christ. Peter says, taste the Lord that he is good. John chapter 6, the Lord says, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And John chapter 6, he speaks about being the bread which came down from heaven. Now, of course, we know such is in reference to figurative language. But this roasted lamb for the Old Testament pictures Christ our Passover. God's fire would try him, being Jesus Christ, and there was no dross. He would say, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. But for today, if you aren't Jesus Christ, or for today, if you're not a Christian, Almighty God will never say that to you. Eat the lamb, back in the Old Testament, whereas for the New Testament, you eat, you drink, you receive the Lord's death on the cross as a covering, as a total and unequivocal provision for your sins. You can't miss it, can you? A verse 12 and I'll close. For I will pass through the land of Egypt this night, and will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. I am the Lord. I am that I am. Before Abraham was, I am. I'm going to come. I'm going to kill all the gods in Egypt. And also be aware of this, that the Egyptians had many gods. And we've already mentioned some of them over the last 26 weeks but one of their gods was also tied up with the eating the sacrifice going back to prohibitions found in eight and nine not to eat it raw because Egyptians were very superstitious so you see how the Lord's going to pass through Egypt this night from verse 12 he's going to smite he's going to kill all the firstborn not just some but all of the firstborn in the land of Egypt both man and beast because he is angry his anger abides over those that are those that refuse to believe on him a john chapter 3 he has a righteous anger he has a holy anger he's also loving he's caring he's very merciful and we have to say all these things because uh, a good many times people uh, have a look at the scriptures they don't always want to study the scriptures and they misrepresent him he's a very patient loving holy righteous god and he would raise up a gentile like wingate to help the jews out he would raise up a jew uh like Marcus, to help the Jews out, 1947, 1948. He would raise up Moses and Aaron, Exodus chapter 12. But ultimately, he's going to raise up his blessed son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So, a very quick wrap-up, and we will close. The first month uh, for the calendar of the Jews is going to be April time. Nisan and Abib, or Nisan, is when things start to begin for the nation of Israel. And like I say, in the UK, the financial year will begin in april you've also got the morning 
uh, for the Jews beginning at 6am, whereas for the Gentiles it begins at midnight. Go back to Genesis if you need to. The evening and the morning were the first day, evening and the morning, second day, evening and the morning, third day, so on and so forth. Happy is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. That's marvellous. And that comes from the pen of David, and that's fulfilled completely and totally in the Lord Jesus Christ. They were told to find a roasted lamb or a roasted uh, kid. And once that lamb had been found, it had to be a male, around a year, a year old. And Christ, of course, is our perfect male lamb, the firstborn of God. Also, unleavened bread and bitter herbs, picturing once again the bitterness of this atonement, going back to an animal suffering for you, an animal suffering for us. And again, I know for some people, they don't like the idea of blood being shed. A lot of people get squeamish when they see blood being shed. I don't care for it myself. We were in uh, Nazareth some years ago, and we saw this meat ma- uh, this uh, meat factory, mm. and we saw all these animals strung up. We saw animals having their throats cut. And of course, Nazareth, if you don't know, is run by the Muslims. And they were sacrificing, or they were preparing their uh, meat for uh, their consumers. There was blood everywhere. Okay. It's a horrible sight, and it stinks as well, going back to the sacrifice for your sins and for mine. And the flies, of course, all around the meat. This uh, unleavened bread, uh, if you think of the yeast, which causes the bread to rise, and I'll speak more about the leavened bread and unleavened bread next week, but I'll say this, that leaven for the New Testament is a picture of evil. Leaven for the New Testament is a picture of works and grace, grace and works. Or like doing religion, going back to Jonathan Aitken's quote-unquote, ordination yesterday. And that's what God hates. He hates this Nicolaitan setup. He hates the idea of people doing religion. He hates the idea of people trying to resurrect the Old Testament. He hates the idea of people trying to dig up an obsolete covenant, which is what a lot of Jewish and even uh, certain groups of Christian people do. He has no time for that. Also, if you think of Psalm 34:20, He keepeth all his bones, not one of them is broken. And again, we'll discuss that more next week so what you've had this morning by the grace of god is a crash course uh, looking at exodus chapter 12 a very fascinating piece of scripture marking out what was to come the way uh, for the way of the jews what what they would be expected to do and what they could not do almighty god is very particular he's very precise as to what he will accept and the animal is going to represent jesus christ and the door frames are also referred to as lintels back in the Old Testament. And again, we'll discuss more of that next week. Please open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. And last week we looked at a lamb. And that lamb became the lamb. And that lamb became your lamb. And that goes back to appropriating the atonement. And I made the case last week that for a good number of people, they are pretty happy to accept help from a guarantor, from a substitute, and they will do so when things get pretty rough, like what is currently going on in Thailand. You've got a group of school children, football players, trapped in a cave with their coach. They've been there for, what, 10 days? They can't get them out. And the government of Thailand are desperate. And, of course, the plea for help has gone out, and experts from Britain, America, Australia and Canada have flown to Thailand to risk their lives to get these children out and their coach. In fact, the first person into the cave was a Brit. We call that substitutionary atonement. We call that a guarantor. 
But again, some people are quite happy to accept help when it comes to having their rent covered or when it comes to having their loan or mortgage covered. And yet when it comes to salvation, people don't like it. People don't like the idea of someone doing something for them. Well, here's the thing. Let's say you are from Thailand. Let's say you are a Buddhist. And I saw in the news a few days ago, their holy uh, Buddhist, I'm not sure what they call him, and he went to the cave where these uh, young people are trapped, like half a mile under the ground. Must be terrifying. And he arrived, and all of the good and the great turned out to greet this holy man, quote-unquote. He spent a while there, said his prayers, Nothing happened. And you would have thought this, that such a holy man could just click his fingers and those children would be released. He couldn't do anything. And this goes back to 2007 when the McCanns went to Rome to see the Pope wanting help, uh, wanting his assistance concerning the disappearance of Madeleine McCann. And both of those middle class doctors, Catholics of course, arrived uh, desperate and left desperate. The Pope couldn't help them out. And this holy man last week in Thailand, couldn't help his own people out. And like I say, they've been begging the West for help. And those men, very brave men, volunteers, I should say, have risked their lives. And today, like right now, they are attempting a rescue mission. It could go either way. I'll come back and discuss that more this morning. First Peter chapter 1, First Peter chapter 1, look at verse 18, please. For as much as ye know that you are not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold, from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who by him do believe in God, that raised him up from the dead, and gave him glory that your faith and hope might be in God. Find a lamb. The lamb becomes the lamb. The lamb becomes your lamb. You have to appropriate the atonement. You've got to find a lamb. You have to cut that lamb's throat. You might say, I don't like that idea. You might say, that's pretty grim. You might say, that's pretty uh, bloody. Go back to the book of Exodus. Well, then don't bother with a lamb. Present yourself at the great white throne judgment. Tell the Lord what a great person you were. And you'll see how, how that thing goes. But again, a guarantor will help you out concerning financial affairs. Divers will fly halfway across the world to assist those boys trapped in a cave. Their own crowd can't get those kids out. The first person to reach those boys was a British diver. A British diver. Not a Thai diver. Listen, they got the Navy SEALs there. Their own special forces. They couldn't reach those boys. It fell to the Brits, backed up by the Americans, the Canadians and the Australians. So please keep all those thoughts in mind. Because when it comes to salvation, there's only really one or two ways. You either present yourself at the great white throne judgments and hope for the best or you get under the blood and here exodus 12 is going to be via a lamb so just a couple of things i want to uh mention before we get into today's chapter and ask you to cast your eye over verse 6 and ye shall keep it up until the 14th day of the same month 14th of april and the whole assembly of the congregation of israel shall kill it in the evening now that term Assembly, as you know, is also found in the New Testament. And here it says the entire congregation will have to kill the animal because all of them are sinful. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. If you think of the term evening, going back to Genesis, and I discussed this last Sunday, if you are mindful, 
the Jews go evening to morning, that's how they count their days, whereas we go morning to evening. If you think of someone like Josephus who said this, he said, during his day, the lamb would be sacrificed at 3 p.m. 3 p.m. And of course, Christ would die, give up the ghost at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. You can't really explain this, even not a Bible believer. You might say, well, he got right, or he got this right, or he got that right. You may say, well, Moses wrote such and such, and the apostles took a chance and wrote such and such. That won't work. You've got over 500 witnesses that would see the resurrected Christ. So here, the entire congregation, like the, uh, the entire church for today, will have to uh, keep it up until the 14th day and kill it in the evening. You've got Holy Week, and I'll discuss that in a little while, from Palm Sunday to Good Friday. And even if you knock out a day here and there, it's still very similar. Four days, the lamb is in the person's house awaiting sacrifice. Christ is preparing to sacrifice himself. And verse 7 again, And they shall take of the blood and strike it on the two side posts and on the upper door posts of the houses, wherein they shall eat it, strike it. The Lord Jesus Christ was struck. He was slapped about. And again, you have to physically do something. Back in the Old Testament, you have to physically do something. Now, for today, by the grace of God, we don't have to physically do anything. The best we can do is simply believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Eight again, and they shall eat the flesh in that night. Could be 3 p.m. Roast with fire and unleavened bread. And with bitter herbs shall they eat it. This is a meal which the Lord would also repeat concerning the Last Supper, of course. Eat not of it raw, nor sodden at all with water. But roast with fire. Now watch this. Semicolon. His head with his legs. Genesis 3 and John 13 speak about the Lord's head. And how the devil would bruise the head. And with the pertinence thereof. His internal organs. You think of the centurion getting a spear. And puncturing the Lord's uh, ribcage. Or just under the ribcage. You see how the animal pictured here is found once again through Jesus Christ. So one more time, uh, Christ will put his blood in the Holy of Holies. His head is going to be bruised, and on top of that, he will be blindfolded uh, and also struck on the face. Legs, going back to the devil, bruising his heel. And one more time, the pertinence, his internal organs, uh, also being pierced with a sword. You can't get away from this incredible imagery, and I'll discuss that more today, if I may. Look at verse 13. And the blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses where ye are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and the place shall not be upon you to destroy you. When I smite the land of Egypt, it all comes back to the blood. And yet I've lost counts over the years as to how many times people say, but I don't want to trust someone else. I want to do it myself. Let's say you are a typical woman. Let's say you are seven months pregnant. Let's say you are waiting to board a bus. Are you honestly telling me that if a gentleman or maybe another woman uh, came up to you and said, please have my seat, you wouldn't take up such an offer? Of course you would. Or do you mean to tell me if you are waiting at a bus stop and you're late for work and somebody says uh, you can go in front of me, you wouldn't take such a person's kind offer? Of course you would. You mean to tell me if your car broke down, your tyre blew and you're late for work and somebody pulls up and says to you, I've got a spare Tyre, you wouldn't take him up on such an offer? Of course you would. Why do we kid ourselves? Go back to Thailand, just think about that for a few minutes. They can't help their own boys out. They need Western help. And they've got the best help. And they will benefit. And by the grace of God, 
Those young children and their coach are going to escape. And the blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses where ye are. And when I see the blood, precious blood of the Lamb, I will pass over you imputation. And the plague, a picture of judgment, shall not be upon you to destroy you. When I smite the land of Egypt. Egypt is, of course, a picture of the world. And outside of the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, there is no hope. It doesn't matter who you are or where you are, there is no hope. And this is one thing that separates biblical Christianity from every other religious system on the face of the earth. They all teach in faith and works, all of them. And they all say that when you get saved, or the Christian wing, Christendom especially, that when you get saved, you have to continue to produce works uh, to stay saved, or to prove that you're one of the elect, or to be sure that you don't lose your salvation. Such, of course, is a lie. 14. And this day shall be unto you for a memorial, and you shall keep a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it a feast by an ordinance forever. It's a very technical word, ordinance. Paul mentions ordinances. He mentions the word ordinance from 1 Corinthians 11. He says this, he says the ordinances will be baptism and the breaking of bread. That's the only ordinance that we have to observe as Bible believers. Today, the term ordinance will be used in a legal uh, setting. You may say this, you may say, or you may have heard this uh, said, uh, the council ordinances, A, B, and C, or your place of employment, they have ordinances. It's a very technical term. And here, this day shall be unto you for a memorial. Now, every Sunday at this ministry, we break bread, and we have done for many years now. Most Bible believers uh, will do just that. And ye shall keep it a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. Throughout your generations. Now, a generation can be 40 years, it can be 70 years. Uh, The term all generations can also refer to uh, the end of the world, the end of this age. And over in Hebrews chapter 1, it says how Christ is the Lord's final messenger. Also from Jeremiah, it speaks about a new covenant being given to the children of Israel. Ye shall keep it a feast by an ordinance forever. So the Jews are meant to meet once a year at least sacrifice the lamb in commemoration to the great exodus the great departure the great escape and for the church we do just that we do this every sunday to remember what the lord has done for us but for the jews it's now obsolete 70 a.d the temple goes down and from 70 a.d onwards there's no more sacrifice the lord won't receive it he doesn't want it he has turned his back on it Jeremiah, like I say, speaks about a new covenant, which, strictly speaking, comes into place during the millennial reign. So for now, it's in a spiritual form. But for religious Jews today that are offering any kind of a sacrifice, they don't offer physical sacrifices, they do a spiritual sacrifice. Jehovah doesn't care. He doesn't care. He doesn't want it. He's not interested in it. His son is the Lamb of God. His son has paid the price for your sins and for mine and also for theirs. 15. Seven days she eats unleavened bread. Even the first day she put away leaven out of your houses. For whosoever eateth leavened bread from the first day unto the seventh day, that soul shall be cut off from Israel. So one more time, leaven for the New Testament pictures corruption. It pictures wickedness. It pictures mixing the good with the bad. Bit like the internet. A lot of good stuff on the internet. A lot of bad stuff on the internet. Evil communications corrupt good manners. Just a tiny bit of leaven will destroy a church. Just a tiny bit of leaven will ruin a ministry. Just a tiny bit of leaven will destroy someone's testimony. And here the Jews are being instructed how to go forth 
And this may seem somewhat mundane to people today, but remember that every word is God-breathed. The apostles and the Lord Jesus Christ would quote the scripture numerous times. I think from memory, the four writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, quoted the Old Testament 80 times. And from memory, I think Paul quoted it 60 times. The church fathers, up until the second century, quoted every book in the New Testament, apart from, I think, 11 verses. Peter says how all of Paul's writings are inspired. Scripture, God-breathed. So when it comes to the Old Testament, every book in the Old Testament, excluding, of course, the Apocrypha, which was never quoted by the Lord or the Apostles, is God-breathed. And sometimes you will read parts of the Old Testament and not get much out of it, but bear with it. It's there for a purpose. But the latter part of verse 15 that soul shall be cut off from Israel, meaning destroyed, excommunicated, killed. If you think of what Paul would say from the book of Galatians, he says over in, I think it's chapter 5 from memory, that whoever the false teachers were, whoever they were, wherever they were, he wished they were cut off, like killed. That's coming from the mouth of the Apostle Paul. And that also shows me one other thing, that apostolic foreknowledge had ceased. I'm sure you will notice that. People like to quote the book of Acts. Most street preachers like to believe in, or they do believe in healings and prophecies. And yet, if you read Acts of the Apostles carefully, like chapter 12, when James uh, was killed by Herod, nobody resurrected him. Did you notice that? Nobody resurrected him. James, Zebedee, his close brother John, Zebedee, the Lord's cousin, he couldn't help him. Paul's almost blind by the end of Acts of the Apostles. Nobody could help him out. Nobody could help out Trophimus and other leaders uh, when Paul is under house arrest, end of Acts. Nobody breaks him out, and yet the Lord got Peter and John out of jail. Acts chapter 5, is it? Or thereabouts. And of course you get from that how the Lord is starting to rescind and reduce apostolic knowledge, gifts, so on and so forth. But also it's very interesting from verse 15. First day... Under the seventh day. You could say this. You could say here that from chapter 12. The Lord is giving you Sunday before the Sabbath. That's very controversial. Maybe i get time to discuss that more later. Look at verse 16. And in the first day there shall be an holy convocation. And in the seventh day there shall be an holy convocation to you. No man of works shall be done in them. Save that which every man must eat. That only must be done of you. Holy convocation, meaning a large gathering of people. On the first day of the week, the Lord Jesus Christ came up out of the tomb. First day of the week, the early church met to break bread. We don't meet on a Saturday. We don't meet on a Friday. Christ comes up first day of the week, being Sunday, and the church meet on the first day of the week to break bread. We don't need to worry about the Catholic Church and conspiracy theories from the Seventh-day Adventists. We stick with the scripture. No manner of work shall be done in them, save that which every man must eat, that only must be done of you. And if you broke the Sabbath, you were put to death. If you worked on the Sabbath, you were excommunicated, executed, cut off. You were run out of town. But when you get to Romans chapter 14, Paul says, some people pick one day above another, others pick all days as holy, and some people don't pick any day as holy. In other words, it's no big deal. And this shows the gigantic shift 
from the Old Testament to the New Testament, from law to grace. And yet, unfortunately, time after time, people are trying to get saved people back under the law. The only law that we are under is the law of Christ. 17. And you should observe the feast of unleavened bread. For in this self same day have I brought your armies out of the land of Egypt. Therefore shall you observe this day in your generations by an ordinance forever. That term ordinance forever and again forever can be for as long as the earth stands. Whereas eternity begins once time concludes. But like I say with the rejection of the Messiah with their temple being obliterated with the children of Israel being dispersed around the world from 70 AD even up until 1948 when they go back into Israel they are now a estranged people if you will yes they are still physically Jews yes they speak Hebrew and Aramaic yes they are still physical descendants of Abraham Isaac and Jacob but Paul tells you that unless you are born again Galatians chapter 3 you're not a child of God and this gets very controversial because what normally happens is you will find some saved Jews referred to as messianic Jews and they want to keep the feast days they want to keep the Sabbath the Sabbat they want to participate in the Jewish rituals and some of those people take it very seriously and they start calling the Lord Yeshua Yahweh they don't want to use the King James Bible they want to use Jewish Bibles and after a short period of time they're back under the law and they start to frown upon people that don't keep the Sabbath and the rituals and so on and so forth and according to the book of Galatians they've fallen from grace the law is finished Christ has fulfilled the law we're not under the law we're not under any of the rituals or ceremonial aspects of the law we're under grace but to be more precise we are under the law of Christ which very quickly baptism breaking of bread, love the Lord thy God, love thy neighbour as thyself. Just four aspects to the law of Christ, and if you add to that, you are a law keeper, and you are fallen from grace, and you are also, strictly speaking, a heretic. 18. In the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month at even, you shall eat unleavened bread, unto the one and twentieth day of the month at even. So even... Being evening, you've got a seven-day period going back to Holy Week, if you will, the lead-up to the crucifixion of Christ. First of the month, going back to April, 14th day of that month, 14th of April, being Abib. At even, could be 3 p.m., going back to what Josephus would say, and also in Christ, hung on the cross, it was pitch black. You should eat unleavened bread, not leavened, but unleavened, without any yeast, unto the one and twentieth day of the month at even 21st of the month seven days shall there be no leaven found in your houses for whosoever eateth that which is leavened even that soul shall be cut off from the congregation of israel did you get that even that soul shall be cut off from the congregation of israel whether he be a stranger or born in the land congregation for the new testament the church for the church today if you eat leavened bread if you mix well, let me say this, if you mix sin with goodness, uh, if you take something which is pure and you try to dilute it, you try to mix it down, or if you start to allow sin into your church or your ministry or your relationship with the Lord, you will be removed, according to Matthew 18. Two or three will approach you, confront you, 
calling you to repent. And if you, if you refuse to repent, they will gather the entire church and they will approach you. And if you refuse to repent, the church will put you out. But here, as far as the Old Testament is concerned, it means death, cut off. Going back to what Daniel tells you, how the Messiah will be cut off. And he certainly wasn't excommunicated. He was executed. We got here seven days. Shall there be no leaven found in your houses? We could say this. We could say from Sunday to Sunday is seven days. And from Sunday to Sunday, we are going about our business. And then every Lord's Day, we come together to eat, in a spiritual sense, unleavened bread. For whosoever eateth that which is leavened, now in the context, this is literal bread. For the New Testament, Christ is our figurative bread. And again, for the New Testament, if saved people or if a saved person perpetually eats or puts up with leaven, like false doctrine, he or she will be cut off, kicked out of the church, or the, wor- or the worst case scenario, Ananias and Sapphira, Acts chapter 5, cut down, and I mean like death. Even that soul, being a person, shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel. The people of Israel for today, the body of Christ, whether he be a stranger or born in the land. They're not yet in the land, but for the Lord, he's already planning ahead. He knows that they are going to go into the land, and therefore he wants them to get this. He wants them to get this and walk by faith. Going back to what Joshua was told, every footstep you take, every everywhere you lay your foot, your heel, uh, the land is yours. There's a picture of appropriating the atonement, or as C.T. Studd once said, it's about faith and action. Don't just say, Father, help me with this, or Father, help me with that, or Father, help him, or Father, help her. Do it yourself, if you can. Yes, pray for the Lord to help such a person, and then do it yourself. Walk by faith. That's what this is really all about. You shall eat nothing leavened. In all your habitations shall you eat unleavened bread. The Jews were told to dress a particular way. They were told to eat particular foods they were told to separate from the world for today there are no restrictions really apart from separating ourselves from the world we can eat what we want we can dress what we want within reason of course but for the jews it was a very different ball game for the jews he wanted them to dress differently speak differently and be a peculiar people and for today most saved people don't like to stick out most saved people like to dress like the world. And yet going back to uh, having your loins girded and a staff in your hand and shoes in your feet. We would say this, we would say for today, put on your best, put on your Sunday best. When it comes around for the breaking of bread, nothing wrong with dressing smart. Nothing wrong with looking your best. But for the Old Testament, how you dressed was mandatory and what you ate was mandatory. If you think about Acts chapter uh acts chapter 10 i think it is from memory when uh, peter goes into a trance and the lord says to him eat this kill that so on and so forth he starts to argue with the lord he says no lord i've never eaten anything impure nothing that would defile me and the lord says listen what i say is pure is now pure to the pure all things are pure and for the first time in peter's life he was forced to eat what the lord told him to eat That was also done to break Peter, because as I made uh, the case over the years from the Antioch incident, it's my belief that Peter was somewhat, I won't use the term racist, that's an overused word and it's a nonsensical word in reality, but Peter was somewhat prideful when it came to his Jewish roots. 
And when Paul got wind of that, he chastised uh, Peter for being overly proud of his Jewish roots. And he put the whip to him in a figurative sense. And also Barnabas. And if you want to know more about that, you can read Galatians chapter 2 in your own time. 21. Then Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said unto them, Draw out and take your lamb according to your families and kill the Passover. So, of course, at this point in the ministry of Moses, there is no Levitical priesthood. The elders, being men, are going to have to take control because the man is over the woman, the woman is over the children, and Christ is over the church. So the elders take the lead. The elders do what needs to be done. For today, we could say this, we could say that when it comes to the breaking of bread, when it comes to reading the scripture, when it comes to baptizing new people, when it comes to uh, discipling new people, that is done via the elders. There is no such thing as the pastor or a pastor. The term pastor is a description, not a title. And you'd be amazed how many people fail to comprehend that. And they say, a pastor said this, or pastor said that. There's no such thing as Pastor Paul, or Pastor Peter, or Pastor John. It is a description, not a title. Moses called for all of the elders of Israel, very reminiscent to Paul, Acts chapter 20, uh, in Ephesus, and said unto them, Draw out, and take you a lamb, according to your families, and kill the Passover. But as far as Paul was concerned, the Lamb of God was the Lord Jesus Christ. He'd been killed for the sins of the world once. You don't keep killing him. You don't keep sacrificing him. You don't keep going to Mass every Sunday or two, three, four, five times a week and crucifying him afresh. That's an abomination. That's what Hebrews is against. See, it's like this. You were born once physically. You were born again once spiritually. Almighty God created this world once Jesus Christ was born once physically. He died once physically. He was resurrected once physically. You passed your driving test once. You passed your GCSEs, A-levels, O-levels once. There are some things that you just do once in this life. And here, elders of Israel, literal men from the time of Moses, fast forward to the elders in Ephesus, Acts chapter 20, and again you see how the Lord is working through groups of men. Because for the New Testament, the churches were run by men, elders. Yes, sometimes deacons. And just for the record, the term bishop means an elder. The term bishop found in First Timothy and Second Timothy is another term for an elder. A married man, incidentally. But you don't have to be married to be an elder. Don't make that mistake. I remember years ago watching a debate between a Catholic and a Protestant. And the Protestant thought he had the Catholic on the back foot. And he said this, he said, are your priests bishops or are your leaders married with children? He's been kind of smart, you see, going to 1 Timothy. Because it says over in 1 Timothy how the bishop must be the husband of one wife uh, with children in submission to him, so on and so forth. And the priest said, no, uh, our priests aren't married. They are uh, bachelors, which is also uh, non-scriptural. You don't condemn people. You don't force men not to marry. You don't force women not to marry. So Catholic priests are non-scriptural, Catholic nuns are non-scriptural. But here's the thing, that Protestant thought he had the Catholic on the back foot. And the Catholic made his argument uh, why it wasn't uh, the case. And I would have added one further footnote to that. Paul wasn't married with children. John wasn't married with children. But they were elders, weren't they? So you be careful with this. 
You've got to be careful. If you want to have a debate with a Catholic, just think this thing, think it through carefully. You can run to 1 Timothy 1, 1 Timothy 2, and you can put that on them. They may or may not know how to respond, but don't think you are being a smart aleck when it comes to trying to put that piece of scripture on them. There are other verses to go to, to show up a Catholic for what he or she is. And of course, you know that the Catholic priest for today is a picture of the Baal, uh, Baalites back in the Old Testament, cutting themselves like they do, Opus Dei, crying all day to Baal, like they do in South America and the Philippines, dressing up in black like Catholic priests do. You know what's going on. You have to go to First Timothy 1 or First Timothy 2 and try and win an argument that way. That won't work. Paul wasn't married. John wasn't married. Paul had no children. John had no children. Both elders, but they weren't pastors. 22. And he shall take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and strike the lintel and the two side posts with the blood that is in the basin. And none of you shall go out at the door of his house until the morning. This is very bloody. The mass is a non-bloody sacrifice. Uh, Solomon, when he builds the temple, from memory sacrificed 20,000 animals. That's quite a feat. If you go to Israel today, and I already spoke about the meat factory in Nazareth they string up the animal they cut the animal's throat it's very gruesome but think of Jesus Christ he was strung up he was nailed to a tree he died a curse to death he tasted death for every man so you may say but I still don't like the idea of somebody doing something for me well that's fine you can arrive at the judgment seat or the great white throne judgment to be more precise and tell the Lord what a great person you were and he will put his sons uh, account to you he will show you what the lord jesus christ did and ask you and how did you match how did you live did you come anywhere near my son i can't stress this enough when it comes to substitutionary atonement taking someone's help if you think of any action movie and i've watched probably too many over the years there's always a good guy in those movies and he will sometimes sacrifice himself for the sake of others and people if they watch that movie in a cinema or a theatre, get on their feet and applaud such a fictitious character. And yet, when it comes to the Lord Jesus Christ, I don't want to have somebody do something for me. I'll tell Allah what a great Muslim I have been. I'll tell Jehovah what a great Jew I have been. I will tell the Lord what a great Catholic I have been. I will tell the Lord what a great Protestant I have been. They've got no idea, no idea what they are talking about. Imagine going to Thailand and shouting down that cave, get yourself out boys, you can do it, just believe in yourself. Those kids are 10, 11, 12, their coach is 25, there's around 12 of them, a mile under the earth, and some moron shouts down, just believe in yourself boys, you can do it, you can swim out of that cave, it doesn't matter that you are dehydrated, it doesn't matter that you've had no sunlight for 10, 11, 12 days, it doesn't matter that you're cold and you're scared, they can't get themselves out of that cave. They need help. We need help. Now that help comes, of course, from the Lord Jesus Christ. And ye, all of you, shall take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin, like a bucket. They're going to take a literal hyssop-like uh, uh, leaves, and they're going to dip it in the blood that is in the basin, like a bucket, and strike. There's that word again, strike the Lamb of God. They struck the Lord as he was blindfolded. Strike, struck, strike the lintel and the two side posts with the blood that is in the basin. 
you've got Christ in the middle, thief number one on the left, thief number two on the right, and none of you shall go out at the door of his house until the morning. Get under the blood. Get under the blood. So, a quick recap. Because again, we've looked at a lot of material. And this chapter is a fascinating chapter. Unfortunately, I think it's a neglected chapter when it comes to hermeneutics. But for how you dress for the day, again, put on your Sunday best. That's good enough. When it comes to the evening, Christ died at 3 p.m., which, according to Josephus, was when they would sacrifice the lambs every April. And, of course, 3 p.m., it's pitch black. And that uh, eclipse of the sun, we believe, was seen in Italy, of all places. Holy convocation. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. Holy convocation, meaning a large formal assembly of people we are the assembly of god if we are saved we meet where two or three meet that is a local assembly the feast of unleavened bread for today would be jesus jesus of course is the bread of life we could say that the holy week is going to mirror the passover it lasts from the 14th to the 20 uh, 14th to the 21st of april that's seven days the lord created the world in six days and rested the seventh this Feast of Unleavened Bread is cited 11 times in Scripture. The animal is to be kept four days to prove it had no blemish. Christ would be held underground. He would be interrogated by Herod and also Pilate. Go back uh, to the last two, three, four days of his life, like John 15, 16, 17, 18, possibly 19. He's speaking to his apostles he has the last supper with them. Judas is about to betray him. And of course, you know what happens. The elders, as far as Moses was concerned, are predating the Aaronic priesthood. The Passover is, of course, a victim. A lamb is a defenseless, pure uh, animal. Jesus Christ was pure, defenseless, and also sinless. There's no specific or central sanctuary or altar around this time uh, and also this uh, annual feast would take place around uh, or it would co- it would uh, coincide with a full moon the smeared blood probably is connected to a purification and consecration ritual for today we would say imputation for today we would say confess your sins first john chapter one and he will forgive you of your sins When it came to eating the animal, no vegetarians or vegans were present. For the millennium, only vegetarians and vegans will be present. All had to eat the animal. It was mandatory. You were told to eat the flesh of the Lord Jesus Christ, John chapter 6. You were told to drink the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, John chapter 6. Not physically, but figuratively. The animal had to be roasted, not boiled. We discussed that Uh, last week and any leftovers would have to be burnt uh, by the following morning we could also say this that the death of the animal pictured a person's sin being atoned for that is very important the death of the lamb pictured a person's sin being atoned for behold the lamb of god that taketh away a one-off act the sin of the world the smearing of blood pictures the purification of those from within 
if he wants a pitch of baptism, perhaps. The eating of the animal pictures a consecration or the consecration for those who consumed it. And finally, the Passover ritual resulted in the people being sanctified and becoming a holy nation. But again, the animal couldn't take away all of your sin. It would simply cover your sin until Christ arrived and took it away forever. The whole assembly today, we would say the church of Israel, like spiritual Israel. Paul says we are spiritual Israel uh, from, I think it's Ephesians. No, maybe that Galatians, the last chapter of Galatians, are to kill the animal because they're all guilty. The Jews were guilty and we are guilty as well. Christ dies at three o'clock in the afternoon. It's dark. Technically, it's evening, according to Josephus. Christ uh, puts his blood into the Holy of Holies. But before he does that, his blood has been shed on the cross. I'm not sure how much blood was left in his body. His head, uh, concerning the animal, think of him being blindfolded. Think of him being struck on the face. And you see the imagery once again. The legs, uh, the devil would bruise his heel. John 13, Genesis chapter 3. The pertinence concerning his heart and liver and lungs would be punctured from the spear of the centurion. And also, one more time, the term forever, like unto all generations, I would suggest goes up until the end of the church age. But strictly speaking, it does come to an end around 70 AD, and it also comes to an end with Jeremiah's new covenant. So it starts with a lamb, it starts with the lamb, and it concludes with your lamb. You need a lamb. You need a lamb to cover your sins. You need someone to save you. You need a diver to swim into a cave to get you out. You need Jesus Christ to cross the river for you. You need the Lord to do something for you because you can't do it yourself. And when I see the blood, I will pass over. I won't strike you. But I would deal with the Egyptians, picturing unsaved people. And this goes back to one more time. Are you covered? Do you have someone looking out for you? Does somebody love you enough to pay for your sins? And we would say, absolutely, that person is, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. Please open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And look at verse 6, if you will. Your glorying is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? Purge out therefore the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened. For even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Go to Exodus chapter 12. So once again, Christ is referred to as our Passover. And a lot of messianic people like to read that scripture from 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and say, well, there you are, you see. The early church kept the feast of the Passover and other Jewish feasts. And they go to the book of Acts to try and cross-reference as such. Well, first of all, I think Paul is speaking hyperbole. Secondly, Paul was a Jew and the early church were mainly Jews, run by Jews. And you find, especially in the latter parts of the book of Acts, James, the Lord's half-brother, very keen to do religion and that was a great bone of contention between the jews and the gentiles as to where do we fit in we being the gentiles but christ of course is our passover in the present tense he died on the cross once and at best if you will you can observe easter perhaps if you are 
a non-Jew or if you are a Messianic Jew, you may wish to uh, you may wish to celebrate the Passover. But strictly speaking, when it comes to the Gentiles, the Passover is found in Christ Jesus. We don't need to observe the Jewish feast days. Exodus chapter 12, look at verse uh, 23, if you will. For the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians. And when he seeth the blood upon the lintel and on the two side posts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not suffer the destroyer to come in unto your houses to smite you. That term, a destroyer, is found over in the book of Revelation, like Abaddon, like Apollyon, and Abaddon and Apollyon both mean the destroyer. Destroyer. So you've got one of two options. Number one, you could say this, that the Lord is going to take the credit for annihilating the firstborn of Pharaoh and for the New Testament, Revelation, I think it's chapter 9 from memory, he will take responsibility for the destroyer, wiping out a large number of people. Look at it again. For the Lord, Jehovah, will pass through to smite the Egyptians. And when he seeth the blood upon the lintel, like the top of the frame, and on the two side posts, again, picturing the cross, you can't miss it. The Lord will pass over the door. Jesus Christ said he was the door. And will not suffer, will not allow the destroyer to come in unto your houses to smite you. So once again, it goes back to the blood. The blood of Christ, are you saved? And if you are saved, you are solely saved based on the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. But here, the destroyer, could be the angel of the Lord, a Christophany, could be Jesus Christ. And yet when you go to Revelation, it's very difficult to cross-reference this and say that the destroyer from Revelation 9, being Abaddon, being Apollyon, is the angel of the Lord. Very difficult. Which again goes back to Christ and the Antichrist, or Christ and the devil. Very difficult sometimes to tell them apart. If you are saved, you may find yourself being constantly buffeted, you may find your prayers becoming rather dry. You may find the word of God difficult to read. You may find yourself at times paralyzed in a unable, incapable, unwilling to do the basic things that Christians do. You may say, is the Lord against me or is the devil against me? You won't always know. In fact, you probably won't know for sure until you get to the judgment seats of the Lord. Look at 24. And ye shall observe this thing for an ordinance to thee and to thy sons forever. Again, ordinance a very technical term, not used so much now, but mainly used at local government levels. But this ordinance is to be observed to your sons forever. So that word forever needs a bit of context to it. The word of God speaks about eternal and everlasting. And the word forever has to be read in the, conjun- it has to be read in, uh, the context that the Jews have generations. And the Lord speaks about the generation alive Matthew 24, that see his return, so on and so forth. As I said last Sunday, it's my belief that from the conception to the crucifixion of Christ, the uh, time clock starts to tick, obviously. The uh, conclusion of the Old Covenant is obvious, and the commencements of the New Covenant clearly takes place upon the death of the testator. So therefore, one more time, if you are a Jew, an unsaved Jew, and you observe the Passover, strictly speaking, you are observing an obsolete feast day. Because without the blood of Christ, you're going to go to hell anyway. But here, in the context, this is even pre-the law, incidentally. The law isn't given until chapter 20. And here, this is pre-the law, and Moses is giving this to you before Jeremiah comes along and gives the Jews the new covenant. 
which again, strictly speaking, comes into place during the millennial reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. So therefore, for today, you've got the church being spiritual Israel, a new covenant in a sense only partly applicable. 25. And it shall come to pass when you become to the land which the Lord will give you, according as he hath promised, that ye shall keep this service. Today is a service. Today is the Lord's day. And by the grace of God, for the last four or five years, every Sunday we have a live service. The term service is a very, is a very generic term. The term service nearly always refers to the church. And here you've got Israel, pre the law. You've got Israel in mystery form of the church for the New Testament. And we looked at convocation. We looked at the first day of the week. And here, again, the term service in reference to Passover. A Jewish feast day, which clearly points back to the reality that the Lord knew how this was going to go. Obviously, he knew that the Jews would receive the word of God via Moses. And with the death of Moses, and if you want more, go to the book of Judges, they would fall away. They would become law, a law unto themselves. And that term, you are stiff-necked people, becomes most relevant. But prophetically, what I'm trying to drive home this morning is the fact that Service, holy convocation, first day of the week are all types and shadows of the future church. The early church met the first day of the week, being a Sunday, broke bread, being a Sunday, took up a collection, being a Sunday. And yet here, this is what, 2,000 years before the initiation of the church, or at least written 1,500 years before the birth of the church. And Moses is getting a glimpse of something quite remarkable, like Abraham would do when he was ready to offer up Isaac. 26. And it shall come to pass, when your children shall say unto you, What mean ye by this service? What mean ye by this service? What is the purpose of this service? Going back to the father, being head of the family, would have to take an animal, store the animal in his home. Again, the husband is over the wife, the wife is over the children, Christ is over the husband. And the man takes the lamb, cuts its throat, pretty gruesome, and yet that is what was necessary. And the kids would watch their father cut the throat of the lamb, blood everywhere. Also, they were told not to break a bone, which if you think of the animal starting to struggle, and the father has to control the lamb, he has to take control of the lamb. He has to keep the lamb still, picturing Christ on the cross, whipped, beaten, smacked about, nailed to the cross, and yet not one bone was broken clearly is a miracle, but for Exodus chapter 12, it was imperative that the animal wasn't to have a bone broken, and therefore down the line, children would say to their fathers, and children would say to their mothers, what is it all about? Why are we doing this? And they'd be explained, it'd be explained to them the whole purpose, going back to this being a covering for people's sins, not the taking away of their sins. 27. Then ye shall say, It is a sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt, when he smote the Egyptians and delivered our houses, and the people bowed the head and worshipped. If I say this to you, if I say it was a great sacrifice for me, you know what I'm referring to. The term sacrifice means to pay a huge price. I remember reading a story some years ago concerning Cherie Blair, and Cherie Blair is the wife of the uh, former British Prime Minister Tony Blair. And Cherie Blair came from a very poor family in Liverpool. And 
You wouldn't think to look at her now, she had come from such poverty, but she did. And her mother was a cleaner. Her father was an aloof actor who absconded, uh, abandoned her. And her mother, dirt poor, coming from Liverpool, like I say, made a huge sacrifice for Cherie. And her mother would scrub the floors. Her mother would do two or three jobs. Her mother put Cherie first. The father was long gone. And I remember Cherie giving an interview some years ago saying she paid such a huge price. She made a huge sacrifice. There's our word, sacrifice. And now Cherie Blair is a high court judge, one of the most senior in the UK. But her mother, her mother paid a huge sacrifice. And here the term sacrifice resulting in lambs being cut, killed, uh, eliminated, building up to the Lamb of God, paying an ultimate sacrifice. Have you want to approach this, it always goes back to something substantial having to take place. A great sacrifice, Take, like taking two or three jobs, getting up at five o'clock in the morning, working your socks off, putting your kids through private schools, putting your kid through university. I mean, paying a huge price. And like I say now, Cherie Blair Blair has done very well for herself. Ye shall say, all of you shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. Feeding back into the Last Supper, feeding back into Easter time, if you will, who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt. Did you get that? Who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt when he smote the Egyptians and delivered our houses and the people bowed their head and worshipped. In the singular, the people. It doesn't say they bowed their heads. It says they bowed their head. Going back to a holy convocation. Meaning an informal gathering of a large group of people. And here Moses wants his people and vicariously future Jews to know why they are keeping the Passover. But again, with the arrival, with the death of the Messiah... Strictly speaking, the Passover is now an obsolete part of Israel's history. They have no temple, they have no priesthood, they have no animal sacrifice, they have nothing. And yet, religious Jews will observe this every year. But strictly speaking, they're wasting their time. Almighty God doesn't see it, doesn't observe it. He doesn't care. Going back to when the temple was destroyed, 70 AD, and the veil was ripped in two. And from that day forth, the Lord pretty much said to the Jews... The temple will be found within each of your hearts. The kingdom of God is within you. Going back to the new birth, of course. 28. And the children of Israel went away and did as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. So did they. Faith without works is dead. Works without faith is dead. If you love me, keep my commandments. This was a monumental point in the history of the children of Israel. It will take a lot of confidence, a lot of courage. And also sacrifice to do this. It is fair to say that there would have been a number of Jews that were quite comfortable back under Pharaoh's command, under his control. Uh, Yes, they were physically and technically in slavery, but there would have been some Jews who were doing okay. You'll always find entrepreneurs during difficult times. If you go back to World War II, if you look at two or three of the most infamous and notorious death camps, people like George Soros... We're making money out of this. And there's an interview online that Soros gave a few years ago where he says that he was able to escape one of those death camps, was able to get out by the skin of his teeth, and he was able to uh, bribe a particular guard, and he absconded. And the interviewer looked aghast. 
that this Jewish man, who's an atheist, was, um, was almost boasting, was almost bragging how he was able to escape. Other Jews during the death camps were, I won't say doing very well, but they were getting by. They worked very closely uh, with people like Oscar Schindler and others, and they were considered to be privileged, shall we say. But for the most part, the Jews that were living through slavery had it really bad, really bad. 29. And it came to pass that at midnight the Lord smote all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh that sat on his throne, unto the firstborn of the captive that was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of cattle. Midnight, midnight, Acts 16 at midnight, Paul and Co. are singing hymns at midnight, uh, Mark 15. Jesus Christ speaks about three possible times when he may return. Second Advent, not the rapture. And one of the time slots is midnight. But I'm thinking this. I'm thinking that at midnight, 29, came to pass that the Lord smote all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. So I'm thinking this. I'm thinking that the Lord at midnight kills all of Pharaoh's firstborn sons, including his heir. And I'm thinking this, that the devil repaid the Lord and he repaid the Lord by killing all of the Lord's firstborn sons. Matthew chapter 2. Again, going back to the Lord and the devil working so close together that you can't tell them apart at times. From the firstborn of Pharaoh that sat on his throne, his male heir, who obviously would succeed him, to the firstborn of the captive that was in the dungeon. Joseph was in the dungeon. Christ was in the dungeon. And all the firstborn of cattle. So once again, if you want to destroy a nation, take out the livestock, take out the vegetation, cripple the currency, and then focus on the people. Doesn't take much. Doesn't take long. But here midnight will be synonymous with death. But for the New Testament, again, Acts 16, it will be synonymous with life. The Apostle Paul uh, was singing uh, singing hymns, like I say, The jailer hears what is going on. He's about to kill himself. He is fearing the worst. Later on it says how Pharaoh, not Pharaoh, make that Herod, uh, when he discovered that one of the apostles had managed to escape, Peter from memory, he ordered the execution of the guards. He blamed them for negligence. And therefore the Philippian jailer thought he would get the same and therefore he was about to kill himself. And, of course, you know the rest. Paul shouts out and says, Do thyself, no harm. We are all here. And he says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And he says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. So you've got two midnights. Midnight here, resulting in death. Midnight for the New Testament, resulting in life. Look at verse 30. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants, and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt. For there was not a house where there was not one dead. If you go back to Russia, if you go back to 1945, 46, 47, going into the early 1950s, it was said that every Russian knew someone directly or indirectly that died during the war or that served during the war or who sacrificed. There's our word again from, uh, from 27, who sacrificed to the motherland during the war. Everybody knew someone, directly or indirectly, that had paid their dues. And here Pharaoh rises up in the night, almost similar to Nicodemus, going to Jesus at night. 
and all his servants and all the Egyptians. There was a great cry in Egypt. They say that World War One is or was the Great War. Great meaning terrible, not awesome. For there was not a house where there was not one dead. So the Lord has said he would do something. The Lord uh, always tells the truth. If he says he will do something, he will do it. And also I'm thinking this. I'm thinking that midnight, 29, I'm thinking that the Magi's arrived at midnight in Jerusalem, Matthew chapter 2, and they go up to uh, Herod, and they say to Herod, where is the king of the Jews, so on and so forth, and he doesn't seem to know what they are talking about. But it could be that the Magi's, when they arrive in Matthew chapter 2, arrive at midnight, and here you've got this midnight incident taking place and as a result death will follow so you see sometimes if you take the time to read the old testament very carefully you get pictures glimpses you get revelations concerning something that is about to take place 31 and he called for moses now and by night and said rise up and get you forth from among my people both ye and the children of israel and go serve the lord as ye have said, I've had enough of you people. You've been plaguing me, excuse the pun, for a period of time now. I want you out of my land. I know that I can't defeat you. If you go back to the dark days in Northern Ireland, it was obvious to the IRA that they couldn't physically defeat the British Army. So they used guerrilla tactics. They used uh, dirty bombs. They used uh, unconventional means and methods to fight their enemy they knew they couldn't beat the british head-on most uh, countries around the world couldn't beat the british army head-on so they do it in a roundabout way and here he knows he can't fight the lord going back to gamaleo from the book of acts and it says over in acts if this isn't of the lord it will come to naught but if it is of the lord we can't do anything against it a slight paraphrase and here pharaoh was a fool was in denial but at the same time he wasn't a moron. He knew that his days were limited and therefore he wants to expel the Egyptians. Going back to our word again, exodus, like to exit, expelled, or Brexit. 32. Also, take your flocks and your herds as ye have said, and be gone, and bless me also. I love that bit. And bless me also. Is he being comical there? He's withheld, he's withstood Moses for eight nine chapters you don't find herod saying to the magis and bless me also what you do find with herod is the lie that if they were to find the messiah bring me back word that i may worship him as well of course herod that old fox and pharaoh this old fox had no intention of doing anything but again i like this take your flocks and your herds as ye have said in other words i am surrendering to you and be gone that term be gone or be gone get out of here hit the bricks like they used to say and bless me also in other words you are the victors and i am the victim of satan's successful seduction this must have been heart breaking for pharaoh to finally realize that he wasn't going to win i think he knew in his heart of hearts that he wasn't going to win Going back to 44, 45 in Berlin, you've got all of the top Germans in the bunker with Hitler. And they are saying to Hitler, we can't really win. 
we've got 10 million Russians coming from the east. We've got 7 million English, American, Canadian, Australian, New Zealanders and others coming from the west. We can't win. And Hitler thinks that the V2 rocket is going to save the day. And he thinks that Quito has a secret reserved or a secret uh, division somewhere outside of Berlin that will come to the rescue. And of course, he was deceiving himself. But I think deep, deep down, deep down in the heart of Hitler and deep down in the heart of Pharaoh and deep down in the heart of Herod, Herod the Great, Matthew chapter 2, they knew that it was all up. But what could they do? They can't lose face, can they? If you do street work, you can't lose face, can you? If you do street work, if you have a street ministry like we do, if you speak to people on the streets like we do, you can't lose face. You can find yourself up against one, two or three very hostile people shouting at you, wanting to claw out your eyes, scratch your face, so on and so forth. You can't retreat. You have to stand your ground. Not easy, I know. And here, uh, Pharaoh, on the wrong side of the Lord and on the wrong side of history, doesn't want to lose face. And yet, what else can he do? And the Egyptians were urgent upon the people that they might send them out of the land in haste. For they said, We be all dead men, physically dead and also spiritually dead. Going back to Calvin's unscriptural belief, going back to Tulip. Total depravity or total inability. No such thing. No matter how wicked, no matter how estranged, no matter how deranged you are before you are saved, you still know that you're no good. And on top of that, you still know that there is a glimpse of hope, light, goodness outside of you, going back to the light of the Lord. And here, get them out of the land. Do it quickly, for they said, we be all dead men. If you think of Vietnam, if you think of 1974, 1975, if you think of the fall of Saigon, if you think of tens of thousands of Vietnamese trying to reach the American aircraft carriers, and you've got the Viet Cong at the gates, brutal Maoists, brutal Marxists, brutal uh, Stalinists and also Satanists and they were chasing uh, the Vietnamese those that were pro the South the South were on the side of the Americans North on the side of the Viet Cong and they were chasing the the Viet Cong were coming from the North chasing those in the South and they got to uh, the harbour area Hanoi and there were several aircraft carriers and the Americans had a problem what are we going to do? We can see Maybe five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten thousand. Some of those people work for the Americans. Some of those people are Americans. Some of those people are our friends. What are we going to do? And they did something which you wouldn't have thought they would do. They start to push off helicopters from their carriers. They start to push off fixed wing aircraft from their carriers. Those things cost five million dollars each. And there's footage of that if you want to see it. And you've got helicopters fixed wing aircraft being pushed off these American aircraft carriers into the sea to allow those people on to the American aircraft carriers to get them out of harm's way. That's just a tiny picture of an exodus in Vietnam. But here it's coming from the standpoint of, if you will, 
the victims of Satan's seduction. We be all dead men, absolutely. Ever true word said in jest, and the people took their dough before it was leavened. The needen troughs being bound up in their clothes upon their shoulders. There are three tenses when it comes to one salvation. I am saved. I am being saved. I am going to be saved. And here you've got the dough. You've got the leavened bread. Here you've got people having to pack up and get out quickly. A bit like those people in Vietnam. And also a picture here going back to three stages of your salvation. In other words, they're not yet saved. They've got to get out. They've got to move. Going back to the word gospel. Gospel meaning go. Gospel meaning God. Gospel meaning good. So you've got good, gospel, go. Do something. Get out. But here they are running for their lives, literally. 35. And the children of Israel did according to the word of Moses. And they borrowed of the Egyptians jewels of silver and jewels of gold and raiment. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sights of the Egyptians. So they lent unto them such things as they required. And they spoiled the Egyptians. Going back to what we said a few, a few, a few uh, Sundays ago. Back wages now being paid at the end of World War II. By the mid-1960s, Germany was the wealthiest country in Europe. And still is. And... It was decided by Jewish groups that Germany would have to pay damages. I'm not sure the Japanese had to pay damages either. I know a lot of Chinese people suffered at the hands of the Japanese, like uh, Eric Little and uh, even uh, Billy Graham's father-in-law and his wife had to get out before the Japanese arrived. Many people died uh, during uh, World War II. So I don't know if the Japanese had to pay damages in the same sense that the Germans did. Of course, when it comes to the Germans, they killed uh, many more, I think 20 million directly and also indirectly, going back to Russia and being in Russia post the war, everyone knew someone that had paid the price. But the Germans felt they had to pay uh, compensation to Israel, and they still do up until the present. But the Japanese, I may be wrong when I say this, but the Japanese seem to have got off rather likely so 36 verses looking once again at israel's soon to be departure uh, from the land this will be something spectacular something which you never would have thought could or possibly would ever happen i want to say a few things before we close uh, today's service that you've got a literal group of people back in the old testament the jews the hebrews call them what you will who are greatly beloved, like the church. You've also got a lamb, going back to a lamb, the lamb, your lamb. And a lamb is a humble, pure, and meek animal. Jesus Christ is a humble, pure, and meek person. Out of all the animals that the Lord could pick, he would refer to Christ as the Lamb of God, first coming. Second coming, a lion. Lion of the tribe of Judah. Also, the term from uh, verse uh, 7, strike it strike it if you think of christ nailed to a cross a very physical bloody and painful death going back to he paid a huge sacrifice for me she paid a huge sacrifice for me she gave up her career to help me do this or he gave up this to help me do that but from the standpoints of the lord he gave his life john chapter 1 
to not only cover our sins, but to take away our sins. The simplest way to try and explain leaven for today would be to perhaps offer the following analogy. The word of God is pure, but for a good number of saved people, maybe a fourth of a Christian's life is tied up in Hollywood, watching the movies, enjoying dramas. Another fourth of a Christian's life is tied up in sports, entertainment. So what you've got there is a mixture. You've got a mixture of a Christian loving, believing, reading the Word of God, and yet the Christian is also very much in love with Hollywood, or television, theatre, entertainment in general, and he's also very much in love with sports, being uh, one of the main religions in the world today. So he is, technically speaking, an adulterer in a spiritual sense. We were told not to love the things of the world. We were told that the uh, that friendship with the world, of the world, is enmity with God, and we were told to be separated from the world. So what you end up having is a... Um, uneven Christian, a Christian who is saved, going back to standing in state, but he is messed up, he is mixed up, and his loyalties are now split. He should be 100% sold out for the Lord, but he's not. He's not even 50% sold out for the Lord. When I see the blood, a wonderful description, when I see the blood, are you covered by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ? A good number of people will spend money on their house insurance, their motor insurance, and even life insurance. I was told a story, maybe 20 years ago, concerning Robert Maxwell. And Robert Maxwell was a very infamous, notorious British baron, the Donald Trump of his day. And he was worth millions upon millions. He may have been a billionaire at his height. And uh, Robert Maxwell was Jewish by birth. And he made a lot of money during the war. And... To cut a long story short, he would buy the Daily Mirror, a British tabloid. And around the late 1980s, he got into trouble, financial trouble. And he realised that he couldn't balance the books. He had been stealing money from his own pensions. Uh, His own people had paid into a pension. And he was stealing their money, trying to gamble on the stock markets. It all blew up in his face. And he had at least one life insurance policy that I was told about. And that life insurance policy was for something like £10 million or thereabouts. And Maxwell went on holiday. He went to Tenerife, 1991, 1992 or thereabouts. And Maxwell, this very flamboyant, conservative character. In fact, I think he was Labour, strictly speaking, but he was conservative with a small c. uh, Had been very generous to the Labour Party in the UK. Jewish by birth, like I say, but he got into trouble. And apparently, according to some, he crossed certain groups, which I shan't name. And one of the groups apparently decided to eliminate him. And he died an awful death. But here's the thing. He took out an insurance policy with a very well-known insurance, a very well-known American insurance company, which I shan't name. And they wouldn't pay out. They wouldn't pay out. He had hoped that upon his death, uh, he would have his insurance paid out to his widow and children and they said no we don't think this is a legitimate death we think he may have been killed and there are pictures of him in some of the french newspapers Paris match i think 
very graphic photographs of Maxwell's face all busted and bruised, cut lips, and it would appear that he was killed by somebody he wouldn't have thought would kill him, an organisation that you wouldn't have thought would kill him. But here's the point, and I'll say this and wrap this up, that he took out a lot of insurance, and we could say this, that he is a great picture of somebody who is religious, goes to church regularly, like Sheree Blair, a Roman Catholic, and Tony Blair, a Roman Catholic, and other well-known, wealthy Roman Catholics, give very generously to their church. And Maxwell was very generous to Israel as a nation, gave money to Jewish causes, only to find himself assassinated, and all of his money that he gave to Israel and other groups around the world didn't come back. He wasn't able to recuperate it, and when he wanted the money, when his family needed the money the most, it wasn't paid out. That's a great picture of vain religion. That's a great picture of not trusting the blood of Christ, but trusting in your own works. And he had at least three policies, and when push came to shove, they wouldn't pay out. And I wonder how many Catholics and Jews today and Muslims that are going to die, and 10 out of 10 people die, arrive in eternity, and for those people, great white throne judgment, and uh, think to themselves, but I got a policy. I gave to Cafford. I gave to Bernardo's. I gave to Shelter. I gave to Amnesty International. I gave to Greenpeace. And the Lord says, I don't care about that. I want to see the blood. The blood saved the Jews, chapter 12, from the book of Exodus, and the blood of Christ... John chapter 1 saves the entire world, which also goes back to appropriation and atonement. The Lord will provide an atonement for the world, but you have to personally appropriate it. Faith without works is dead. Works without faith is dead. The Father takes the animal, cuts its throat. That's a picture of somebody today getting saved, getting his wife saved, getting his children saved. It's not just enough to sit back and say, but we are Jews. We are the chosen race. You have to believe yourselves. Faith without works is dead. And one last time, works without faith is dead as well. You need faith in the blood. You need to do something about the blood. You need to appropriate the blood. An old man, Maxwell, thought he could beat the rap, had all these insurance policies, had friends in high places in London, Washington, Tel Aviv, and it all meant nothing. And like I say, he had a very unfortunate and suspicious death, and his... Insurance policy didn't pay up, but if you're born again, if you are under the blood of Christ, you are safe and sound because somebody loves you enough to die for you, somebody loved you enough to taste death for you, and somebody referred to as the door decided to allow you an entrance into his kingdom. But you have to personally appropriate the atonement. And for today, you simply reach out, turn to the Lord in faith, receive him, as your own saviour, believe on him and trust in him. And the Bible says from John 1, 11, 12 and 13, that you are now a son of God simply by receiving the Lord Jesus Christ. So this will be week number four, and next week will be week number five, and Lord willing, the final part of our look at Exodus chapter 12. We said at the beginning this would probably be a five-week study, and it has... Turned out to be just that. But for this morning, before we get into verse 37, just a very brief and important recap. This chapter deals with the birth of a nation, the creation of a nation, the initiation of their constitution. And the first month in their calendar is Abib, 
That's A, B, I, B. And for today, that would be April, of course. They were told that they would need a lamb. And the lamb, if it was too small, uh, would need to be uh, shared with neighbours. Like if the property was too small, uh, share next door's uh, apartment, flat or home. And for today, we would say this, that once you get saved, you share the Lamb of God with somebody else. The term everlasting, when it's mentioned back in the Old Testament, means as long as the earth lasts. So everlasting means as long as the earth lasts. Whereas eternal means eternity after time is over. And it's very important that we get that clear in our minds. Mornings for the biblical Jews would commence at 6 one a.m. So let's say 6 a.m. Whereas for the Gentiles, it is midnight or minute past midnight. Happy is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. So for the Old Testament, right up until the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, their sins were covered, but not forgiven, like a cover note. When I first uh, started to drive over 20 years ago, I remember getting a cover note. And the cover note meant I could legally drive from A to B until my insurance certificates arrived in the post. Similar sort of thing for the Old Testament. Their sins were covered, but not forgiven until the death of the Lamb of God. The Lamb was to be roasted. Christ, of course, is our Passover. And because Christ is our Passover, God would try him with fire in a spiritual sense and would find there was no dross. Back in the Old Testament, they were meant to eat the lamb, like literally. Worse for today, we eat the Lord Jesus Christ. We drink his blood in a spiritual sense. And later on, we would do just that, and we break the bread. Unleavened bread was to be consumed with bitter herbs. And we've already looked at 1 Corinthians 5, 7 to 8. Seven days is mentioned, like Sunday to Sunday. And every Sunday, if you are a Bible-believing Christian, you should break bread. The early church did just that every Sunday. The bitter herbs represent the animal. The bitter herbs represent the sad end to the animal's life. The lamb, or the goat, suffered for our sins. And of course, Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God, and he suffered for the entire world, sins of the entire world. Bread made without yeast is ascribed as unleavened bread. Leaven, of course, is evil. Evil communication corrupts good manners. I'll discuss that more a little later. The first day is also found over in chapter 12. For today, that would be Sunday, and it would appear that the mention of the first day appears before the seventh day, being the Sabbath rest for the Jews. And of course, Christ came up out of the tomb the first day of the week, and I'll discuss that, God willing, next week. He keepeth all his bones, not one of them is broken. Prophesized back in Psalm 34, picked up very clearly and vividly from chapter 12. Pharaoh would say, bless me also, meaning you are the victors, I am the victim of Satan's successful seduction. Loins girded, meaning a belt on one's waist, sandals on your feet, and a staff, a stick in your hand. For today, we would say Sunday best. If you are a fundamentalist, the chances are, if you are a man in a fundamentalist church, you will put on your suit, shirt and tie. And if you are a woman, you'll put on your best hat. You don't really need to do that, but you know why people do that. It is referred to, of course, as Sunday best. 
The animal was to be killed in the evening. Christ would die at three o'clock in the afternoon. And Josephus made the case that during his lifetime, every Abib, he would see with his own eyes that the Jews would sacrifice the lamb around three o'clock in the afternoon. Holy Convocation. Holy Convocation is found several times, and the term Holy Convocation means a large, formal assembly of people. Where two or three meet in my name, there am I in the midst of thee, of such people. Feast of Unleavened Bread is going to feed into Jesus Christ being the bread of life, and also feed into Holy Week, and I'll discuss that next Sunday. The Passover will last from the 14th, to the 21st of April, seven days, which again, if you will, is a picture of our week. Seven day week, and every Sunday we break bread, so on and so forth. The Passover, unleavened bread, to be precise, is mentioned 11 times in scripture. Leaven equals yeast being added to the dough to make it ferment and rise. The animal was to be kept for four days to prove it had no blemish. I think from memory, Lazarus had been dead around four days. And then one day the Lord arrives and he says, Lazarus, come forth. And he came out of the tomb. Somebody once said that you couldn't be dead in the presence of the Lord. You couldn't die in the presence of the Lord. And he just click his fingers and people would come alive. That's power. That's real power. You won't find Muhammad coming anywhere near that. These elders were told to sacrifice the animal. And this took place pre the Aaronic priesthood. For today, we would say this, that the elders control local Bible-believing assemblies and elders for today take control of the service, like the reading, the preaching, and the breaking of the bread. Up until this time, there is no specific central sanctuary or altar. It is, in a sense, progressive revelation, going back to, I am that I am, and then later on, you will call me Jehovah, El Shaddai, El Elion, the Lord has many names. This takes place at twilight, not daylight. And this also coincides with a full moon. The smeared blood that was called for is connected to a consecration and purification ritual because there is life in the blood. There is something special, something sacred about blood, real blood. If you see blood, on the road, let's say you're driving around and there's been an awful car crash and somebody's been thrown out of their car and their cuts and bleeding, people stop and have a good old look. There's something about blood. Those that were faithful to the initiation of Israel's constitution had to eat the animal. So vegetarians and vegans would be prohibited and yet for the millennium, meat eaters are prohibited. During the millennial reign, there'd be no meat eaters anywhere. A throwback to the Garden of Eden. The animal had to be roasted. And uh, on top of that, it wasn't to be boiled. Eaten inside, no bones to be broken. Which is quite remarkable if you think of a lamb as docile as it is. Imagine finding a lamb, bringing it into your home, holding it. And the father gets a knife, cuts its throat. Very gruesome, I know. And the animal is trying to break free. And the man is having to hold it down, a bit like Abraham. And the animal doesn't have a bone broken. Picturing Christ, of course, on the cross, whipped about, tossed to and fro, up on the cross, naked for six hours, not a bone broken. And of course, you know that, of course, is Christ fulfilling biblical prophecy. 
Any leftovers had to be burnt by the following morning. This, of course, is the complete reversal to the Egyptian sacrifices. The death of the animal pictures the atonement for people's sins. The smearing of blood pictures the purification for those within. And the eating of the animal consecrated those that consumed it. So the death, the smearing, the eating results in the atonement, the purification and the consecration. Therefore, the Passover ritual will sanctify the people as a holy nation. For today, we are justified when we believe. We are then sanctified, declared holy, put apart, and then we are eventually glorified. And I'll discuss that more later. So, the Passover sacrifice will feed into the Last Supper. And again, God willing, I will discuss that next Sunday. The whole assembly were to... Find the lamb and kill it in the evening. The whole assembly, like the church, are all guilty. And of course that word assembly is used in the New Testament for the church. So the whole assembly, meaning the church of Israel, and today we are spiritual Israel, are to break bread on a regular basis. But before we do that, going back to the Lord's death on a cross, we would have to be identified with a crucified Messiah. Christ would die at three o'clock in the afternoon. It was dark and we've already discussed the eclipse, some kind of supernatural occurrence which was seen in Italy. Christ puts his blood into the Holy of Holies, but before he does that, he is all out of blood, if you will. He's hung on a cross for six hours and he goes into the tomb. He's as dead as can possibly be stated, and yet some people still believe in the swoon Theory which suggests that he was able to break out of the tomb. Ludicrous, I know, but people still believe that. The animal's head is mentioned. The animal's uh, legs and appurtenance is mentioned. Christ's head was uh, blindfolded. His eyes were blindfolded. He was struck on the face. The legs for the animal contrast that to the Lord's heels being bruised. John 13, Genesis chapter 3, the pertinence, internal organisms... Contrast that to the spear that goes through the side of the Lord. The term forever again occurs, meaning to all generations, leading up to 70 AD. The elders, back in the Old Testament, go to Pharaoh. The Magi's go to Herod. Somebody once said, how do you know that the Bible is the word of God? Well, how do you know that you are breathing? Such a stupid question. If you spend any time reading the word of God, you know that this is the word of God. This cuts you. This book will cut you. This book will hurt you. This book will heal you. This book is alive. Starts off with a lamb, the lamb, your lamb. Going back to you have to personally appropriate the atonement. Old Testament, father gets the animal. Children stand around the father. The father cuts the throats of the animal. New Testament, the father gets saved and his children stand around as he opens up the Bible, reads it. Praise teaches it, and in theory, the entire family should be saved. And when that happens, they come under the Father's covering. Jesus Christ is referred to as the Lamb, Lamb of God. A lamb is a humble, pure, meek animal. And a lamb, a literal lamb, is also the same and defenseless. And I gave you the analogy from First Peter chapter 1. Strike it, strike the animal, back in the Old Testament, like chapter 12. Jesus Christ was struck, nailed, literally, to a cross, not a tree. Leaven, again, feeds back into sour 
dough, yeast uh, is mixed in, resulting good and bad. So the word of God is pure. And last Sunday I made the case that a good number of Christians are split, meaning this, that one-fourth of a typical Christian's weekly activity will revolve around Hollywood, entertainment, uh, sport. One-fourth of a typical Christian is going to be overly indulging in this or that. So therefore, three-quarters of a Christian is very much in the world. And the remaining one-fourth is for the Lord. It was J. Vernon McGee that said, When the rapture comes, Almighty God will have to rip people up from the roots. They are so ingrained in the world system. They are in love with the world system. But praise God, we are saved. And something which has been hidden for most Christians, according to Ephesians chapter 2, we are already ruling and reigning in a spiritual sense up in heaven. And somebody asked me this week, where is the true church today? The true church is in your heart. Jesus Christ said the kingdom of God is within. But if you're not born again, the kingdom of God is without. God, gospel, go, good. The term go, the term gospel, the term God, and the term good are all synonymous. So one more time, you've got God, gospel, go, good. Do something. This morning, we are going to read about two million people on the march. That's quite a statement. They moved. They got up and out of the door. When I see the blood, are you covered by the blood? We spoke last week about Robert Maxwell, a very uh, notorious British uh, multimillionaire, perhaps billionaire at his peak, a very successful Jewish uh, media mogul, and he had connections with every intelligence agency around the world. And he got over his head, and he cut a long story short, he had shares he had investments, he had insurance policies all over the world. He was covering himself like a good number of people do, but he wasn't covering his soul. And he may be buried in Jerusalem today, but so what? If somebody dies without Christ, they go to hell forever. Going back to, are you saved? Have you put the blood over your doorpost? The doorpost, of course, is Jesus Christ. I am the door. I'm the bread of life. Have you appropriated atonement? Do you know the Savior? Are you born again? People say, why do we all die? We all die because our blood is no good. It's as simple as that. We all die, all have sinned, and come short of the glory of God. And therefore, we all die without exception because our blood is no good. So picture the children standing around their father as he cuts the throat of the lamb. Somebody has to die. Either the animal dies in your place and covers your sins until the lamb of God arrives and takes away your sins, or you pay for your own sins. That's all there is to it. It's either the lamb or yourself. And therefore, a real father back in the Old Testament, like Abraham, is a picture of somebody today who gets saved and shares Jesus with his family. The blood on the door, again, Jesus Christ, is the door. And Noah and family, picture that, verse an evil, mocking, and unbelieving world. You're either for the Lord or you are against the Lord. The nights of the Passover would be observed. And when Christ came the first time, it speaks about... The star of Bethlehem, it speaks about the shepherds seeing this bright light, following the bright light, and that was quite a commotion. The blood on the door goes back to the atonement, and one more time, and one last time, you must do this yourself. You must appropriate the atonement yourself. The, uh, the pertinence, again, heart, liver, lungs, his lung was punctured, so on and so forth. Ordinance, city, 
ordinance, a legal ordinance, and also for today, baptism and communion. The term destroyer is found in chapter 12, and from the book of Revelation, the destroyer returns. And the destroyer is referred to as Abaddon and Apollyon. And that term, in Greek and Hebrew, means destroyer. God kills all of Pharaoh's firstborn sons, including Pharaoh's heir. Satan repays him in kind by killing all of God's firstborn sons. Matthew chapter 2. Hyssop is mentioned, and a hyssop, or the hyssop, is a wild shrub. And this shrub will be used in a purification ritual. David speaks about a hyssop from Psalm 51. Israel is my son, even my firstborn. And God says, I will slay thy son, even thy firstborn. And of course, Jesus Christ is the firstborn of God. From verse 9, from Exodus chapter 12, fire is mentioned when Christ dies on the cross. And after a period of time, you have an earthquake taking place. And that earthquake results in the veil of the temple being ripped in two. And also lightning is connected with the death of the Savior. It says over in Matthew 28, they were like dead men. Some kind of shock to the system took place concerning the Roman soldiers. Also from verse 10, Jesus Christ will exit the tomb early Sunday morning. And again, Lord willing, I will discuss that next week. 1 Peter 1.18-21 gives amazing insight to the Lord's completion of prophecy, fulfilment of prophecy, a lamb without spot and blemish, meaning he is sinless. And please show me where Muhammad was ever sinless. Please show me where any pope has ever been sinless. Every pope, did you know, has a confessor? Every pope has a confessor, and every pope confesses to a Jesuit confessor. And you say, could he be blackmailed? Absolutely. You better believe it. And that's why popes over the years have been very careful how they handle the Jesuits, the so-called black pope. Seven days you are to be holy, found in verse 15. For today we would say this, that from Sunday to Sunday the Christian is to be holy, otherwise they will be cut off, not concerning their salvation, but their fellowship, of course. From verse 19... Unsaved people not permitted to partake of communion. And from Numbers 3.38, you weren't even able to approach the tabernacle. And if you did, you were put to death. So for the Old Testament, only the Jews were to partake of the Passover. For today, only saved people are to break bread. And yet this past Easter slash Passover, call it what you will. I remember reading about Jeremy Corbyn. The leader of the Labour Party, a Roman Catholic, apparently, being invited to a Jewish event to, quote-unquote, celebrate the Passover. And I thought to myself, what is Corbyn doing going to a Jewish Passover event? He's a Gentile, he's a Catholic, and by doing that, he is in violation of Exodus chapter 12. And the Jews are also in violation of Exodus chapter 12. But of course, Jews today, nearly all of them, are not Uh, Old Testament Jews, they are rabbinical Jews, following the system that came into place with the fall of the temple. Verse 22, you are to be homebound until the morning. Christ comes up early Sunday morning, and we refer to such as Resurrection Sunday, and I'll discuss that more next week. The term service is found throughout chapter 12. Service 
is very much a New Testament uh, concept. Today is Sunday. Sunday is our service. Holy Convocation, once again, a public gathering of a large group of people. Going back to the early church, meeting in numbers. This isn't a private, do-it-yourself religion. Israel is a type of an Old Testament church. So Israel, back in the Old Testament, is a type in shadow of the New Testament. Israel, back in the Old Testament, is in the wilderness. And today, if you are saved, you too are in the wilderness. That's why you have no friends. That's why the world doesn't like you. That's why you are on your own a lot of the time when it comes to your walk with the Lord. Midnight, Almighty God kills Pharaoh's firstborn. The Magi's may have arrived at midnight, Matthew chapter 2. Death of the firstborn sons, Old Testament. Death of God's firstborn sons, Matthew chapter 2. So midnight Old Testament results in death, midnight New Testament. First of all, also deals with death, Matthew chapter 2, but from Acts 16 deals with life. The captive was also executed in the dungeon, and both Joseph and Jesus were held captive in a dungeon. Verse 34 pictures the three tenses of our salvation, like I am saved, I am going to be saved, I will be saved. Three parts to your eventual complete sanctification. Justification means you are now exonerated, not guilty, or even better than that, innocent. But sanctification is your holiness, your growth, your relationship. And yes, you can stunt your growth if you don't walk with the Lord. You can become spiritually malnourished and as a result just wither away and die. You're still saved. But you become fruitless. But the ultimate key and goal is to be holy, if you can, seven days a week. And remain in fellowship constantly without any break in the chain. Verse 39 is Israel's incomplete salvation. But praise the God by the death, burial and resurrection of the, the, the Lamb of God. We have a completed and complete atonement. And finally, born in the land, picturing those that are going to be born in the land of Canaan some 40 years later. And finally, the Jews were to eat the sacrificed animal, literally, whereas for today we eat and drink Jesus in a figurative sense, because our atonement has already been completed. So last week, by the grace of God, we got up to verse 36 and let's get into today's study look at verse 37 please and the children of israel journeyed from ramesses to succoth about six hundred thousand on foot that were men beside children so israel begins with just 70 men 70 people and if you think of luke chapter 10 the lord jesus christ has 70 men and from 70 men by the end of the second century or thereabouts you've got over a million people that are saved. And here you've got around 2 million Jews. Could be 1.5 million. But no less than 1 million. And here it says they left on foot. Men beside children. And also beside women. This is miraculous. We've already discussed what took place at the end of the Vietnam catastrophe. America, the most powerful country on the face of the earth were unable to beat men wearing black pyjamas. And those little men wearing black pyjamas 
shamed America. America couldn't and wasn't able to defeat the Viet Cong. And somebody once said, it may have been uh, Peter Ruttman, that since 1945, America hasn't won any war. And I thought, I thought to myself, yeah, he's actually right. He's right. Since 45, America hasn't won any war. And Britain, excluding the Falklands, isn't doing much better either. Children of Israel journeyed from Ramesses. 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 It's like a play on words, going back to Ramesses II. To Sukkoth, or Sukkoth. About 600,000 on foot that were men beside children. This is an amazing exodus. The only thing that we can really point that comes anywhere near this would be the Tower of Babel incident. Move. Get out of Babel, meaning confusion. Disperse. Cover the face of the earth. And they said, no, Lord, we want to come together. We want to have the Pope over us. We want to all speak in tongues. We want to be one with Mother Earth. And the Lord said, no, you won't do that. I want you to spread out and cover the face of the earth. Picturing the church today. We're not to be parts of the world. Yes, we are in the world, but we're not to be with the world. We're not a part of the world. We don't yoke up with the world. 38. And a mixed multitude went up also with them, and flocks and herds, even very much cattle, wheat, tares, sheep, goat, enemies from within, not without, of the church. And this goes some way to explain why there is so much heresy and blasphemy out there, and why the body of Christ many times looks like a laughing stock. I saw an article in the paper this morning about St. Paul's Cathedral, and St. Paul's Cathedral, and we were there earlier earlier this year, filming material for our King James project, a wonderful building, built by the Freemason, Sir Christopher Wren, heavily damaged during World War II, and the head of St. Paul's Cathedral, maybe uh, run by a bishop, female bishop of London, I forget her name, are now saying that preaching the gospel is prohibited yeah. on the grounds of St. Paul's Cathedral. But go back four or five years, you've got a group of anarchists, communists, atheists, haters of God, camping, and I can still remember that, outside of St. Paul's Cathedral in their tents. They were there for months. Yeah. And the waste, the mess, smoking their marijuana, their... Drugs, their spliffs, wacky-backy, call it what you will. The air must have stunk. Drinking their alcohol, doing things that they shouldn't be doing in their tents. That was okay. And the head of that church, or that cathedral, back in 2011, I think it was, had no problem with those reprobates desecrating the grounds of St. Paul's Cathedral. But when a preacher, back in March, an American preacher, a bus driver started to preach outside of St. Paul's Cathedral, and we saw him back in February, he was told to stop preaching, he was told to move away, and when he refused to, he was arrested. And people hear about that kind of a story, and they just laugh their heads off. And this morning I read about that in one of our main newspapers, and went down to the comments section, and people were just saying, what's going on here? These are unsaved people reading a story about an apostate cathedral in the heart of central London, just aghast, just appalled. And this goes back to a mixed multitude. Of course, we know those people that run St. Paul's Cathedral, Westminster Abbey and Canterbury Cathedral are unsaved. They're sellouts. They are probably uh, communists or champagne socialists, enjoying a good salary, enjoying people bowing down to them 
in violation of Matthew 23. But here, a mixed multitude, verse 38, went up also with them, and flocks and herds, even very much cattle. This is a picture of the church today. When I say the church, I mean the professing church. Now, the body of Christ is the true church, and if you are in the body of Christ, you are saved. But from the standpoint of the world, they see stories like St. Paul's Cathedral, and they see other stories about sex abuse in the Vatican, and one report that I read about six months ago suggested that 60% of the cardinals in Rome are a cross between homosexual and paedophiles. Paedophilia, sodomy, no big deal. And a tiny 40% are happy, bachelor, no sex, or celibate priests. And even that figure, 40%, I would seriously question if you think of Cardinal Woolsey, back in the days of Henry VIII, he had a mistress, I think one or two children. Most popes, up until recent years, had wives and mistresses, and also children. And yet Catholics today wouldn't believe it. They would say it's all propaganda, but this is true. But in the eyes of the world, the church, whether Catholic or Protestant, is a laughing stock. But from our standpoint, the church is the body of Christ, and as such, is pure, sinless, without blemish, not because of ourselves, absolutely not. It is sinless, it is faultless, it is blemish-free, based on the atonement of our Saviour. But 38 is one of the reasons why Israel suffered so much post their exodus. Because most of the people that left Egypt were not saved, unsaved. Mixed multitude, and out of that figure of around 2 million people, maybe half a million, no, let's bring that down to maybe 50,000, maybe 100,000, could perhaps, and don't quote me, but could perhaps be Gentiles. But for the most part, this is a picture of the divisions in the New Testament today. Let's keep moving on, verse 39. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough which they brought forth out of Egypt, for it was not leavened, because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not tarry. Neither had they prepared for themselves any victual, so this is a great picture of Israel's need to move. Go back to Vietnam if you want. Go back to Babel if you want. Go back to 44, 45, any main, any recent event. Or go back to the Islamic exodus, the Islamic invasion of Europe back in 2011, 2012. Think of the million Muslims that went to Germany. And the German chancellor said, come on in. And they all went in, in their numbers, and you get some idea as to how this would take place, how this would be, how this would work. Baked unleavened cakes of the dough which they brought forth out of Egypt, for it was not leavened, because they were thrust out of Egypt, and could not tarry, could not wait, neither had they prepared for themselves any victual, any food. So I want to say this, that this is a picture of Israel's incomplete salvation. They will have to sacrifice animals right up, until Christ's uh, death on the cross, in a sense to cover their sins. Going back to a covering note when you first pass your driving test and you first purchase your car and uh, you wait for the certificate to arrive in the post, and now you are good to go. Yeah. And that certificate, when it arrives in the post, and I assume they still do that, is a great picture of our salvation. Christ tells us that our names are already written in heaven. But here, there is a need to do something. Going back to, go, good, gospel, God. 
do something, get moving. Verse 40. Now the sojourning of the children of Israel who dwelt in Egypt was 430 years. And people say, hold it, hold it, there's a contradiction. Paul mentions from Galatians that the time frame was 430 years. And when you look at Acts chapter 7, it says, I think it's the same figure of 400 years. In fact, let me just clarify this. From verse 40, it's 430 years. 430 years. Let me just check this. 430 years. Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7 picks up the theme. And Acts chapter 7, verse 6, says 400 years. Paul said over in Galatians, let me just check, Galatians, uh, I think it's chapter 3, Galatians chapter 3, Galatians chapter 3, 430 years, 430 years, yeah, verse 17. So what do you do? You've got a discrepancy, you've got a contradiction, or so they say. And people like to say, well there you are, you see, the Bible is incorrect. The Bible is in error. Well, how about this? Could we suggest this? Could we suggest that the discrepancy of 30 years deals with Joseph's time in Egypt? Doesn't it say that he came of age around 30? Doesn't it say that Jesus Christ came of age when he was around 30? There's no discrepancy. But people are so quick to jump up and down, attack the Bible like that crowd at St. Paul's Cathedral, We don't want people standing on our steps preaching against sin. We don't want people standing on our steps calling on people to repent. But you don't mind anarchists desecrating your steps, intimidating people that are going into St. Paul's Cathedral. Every Sunday they have a worship service. You're okay with that, aren't you? You're okay to march down the streets with homosexuals and lesbians. You're okay to march around London with uh, anti-Trump protesters. You're okay to link arms with Muslims and Jews, Sikhs and Hindus. You're okay with that, aren't you? But when a man stands outside of St. Paul's Cathedral, and I saw it with my own eyes back in February of this year, he's not welcomed, and the following month would be arrested by the city of London police because they phoned the police, that good religious crowd in St. Paul's Cathedral. This is the farce. This is the blasphemy. And later on, when we get to chapter 20... It speaks about blasphemy. It speaks about not taking the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Not just in the sense of OMG. Not just in the sense of oh my gosh, which is an acronym for God. Not just in the sense of gee whiz, which is an acronym for Jesus Christ. Not just darn, which is an acronym for damn. But in the sense of I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian man of God. I'm a vicar. I'm the Bishop of London. Or I am the Bishop of Westminster Cathedral. Or I am the Pope of Rome. And then turn around and say to homosexuals, but who am I to judge you? And yet for many, many years, the Catholic Church were killing people. And I mean literally killing people in their millions. And that's picked up over in Revelation 17 and 18. That is blasphemy. When someone says they are a follower of the Lord and then turn around and hold hands with the world so 41 came to pass at the end of the 430 years including joseph's time of course even 
the self same day it came to pass that all the host of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt, host of the Lord, armies of the Lord. The children of Israel are referred to as the armies of the Lord. The term host means army. Go back to Genesis, it mentions the Lord creating all of the hosts in heaven. And all of the hosts in heaven from Genesis is in reference to angels. And for the New Testament, we are spiritual soldiers of the Saviour. 42 and our close. It is a night to be much observed unto the Lord, for bring them out from the land of Egypt. This is that night of the Lord to be observed of all the children of Israel in their generations. Well, of course, this is something monumental. This is a miracle of miracles, and they would keep this, and they still do. Jews, religious Jews, still keep the feasts. But strictly speaking, as far as I understand it, they are wasting their time because the Messiah has already covered their sins, but because they reject their Messiah, they want to remain under the Old Testament uh, covenants, and yet, strictly speaking, they don't really follow the Old Testament set up. They follow the rabbinical system. And if you speak to most Jews, they don't believe in hell, they don't believe in judgment. They are actually pro-same-sex marriage. And like I say, going back to Corbin, being invited to a Jewish Passover service this past year, have no problem yoking up with Gentiles, and as a result, it is a double abomination to the Lord. It is a night to be much observed unto the Lord for bringing them out from the land of Egypt like a thanksgiving feast. This is that night of the Lord to be observed of all the children of Israel in their generations. We don't need to celebrate Christmas as Bible believers. We don't need to celebrate Easter as Bible believers, and yes, we do preach on the streets every Easter. Patrick will preach on the streets every Good Friday, and next week I will discuss Holy Week and look at that uh, to see if it's even scriptural. But we do it because people know that Easter is synonymous with the Savior, and Christmas is also synonymous with the Savior. And we do that because that is when people are out and about. But for the Jews, it was important that they would keep this feast day. Because Almighty God saved them, sanctified them, and he would deliver them. Contrast that to today. We are saved, sanctified, and have already been predestinated to be conformed to the image of God's Son. Please open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12. And let's begin today's live service, if we may, in verse 43. And the Lord said unto Moses and Aaron, This is the ordinance of the Passover. There's no strange eater thereof, but every man's servant that is bought for money, when thou hast circumcised him, then shalt he eat thereof. There's a word again, ordinance, going back to a city's ordinance. For today, the only two ordinances that I'm aware of would be baptism and the breaking of bread. You're baptized once, you break bread at least once a week. The early church met every Sunday and would break bread, would take up a collection. And just for the record, the Lord Jesus Christ would be raised from the dead, the first day of the week being a Sunday. The Holy Spirit would descend the first day of the week, and after seven Sabbaths, the day of Pentecost would come around. So one more time, Jesus Christ would be raised from the dead, and the church would meet every Sunday. The breaking of bread, the Lord's Day, the worship of the Lord, the reading of the scripture 
like every Sunday, is a scriptural custom, not a Catholic custom. A lot of conspiracy theorists, a lot of characters out there which think that Sunday, referred to in scripture as the Lord's Day, is a Catholic invention. They are incorrect. The church would meet, like I say, to break bread, read the word of God, and a time of fellowship would take place every Sunday. Lord said unto Moses and Aaron, This is the ordinance of the Passover, an annual event. There shall no stranger eat thereof. No stranger eat thereof. For today we would say this, that if you're unsaved, you have no business breaking bread. I remember before I was saved, I knew a reprobate, a non-Catholic. And every Christmas and Easter he would go to my local Catholic church. And his employer at the time was a Catholic when it suited him and these two reprobates would go to mass every Christmas and also Easter but especially Christmas and I remember him saying to me I was at mass last night meaning midnight mass and I said to him but why are you going you're not a Catholic he said well I've got used to going over the years with such and such and I said to him and what did you do when you got there well I received communion I thought what a strange chap not a Catholic an atheist a reprobate probably one of the worst depraved people I've ever known And he thought nothing of going to Mass, every midnight Mass, and receiving communion, of course, from the Catholic position. Uh, They worship the Eucharist from our position. It is a heresy and an abomination. But, of course, that is a picture of something sacred. Although they abuse it, the Catholics, and turn it into a wicked idol, from our perspective, the breaking of bread is sacred. Drinking of the fruit juice is sacred. The fruit juice represents the blood, and the bread represents the body. So for a reprobate, and I mean a reprobate with a capital R, to go to Mass every Christmas with his friend slash employer was a mockery, an absolute mockery. And going back to Numbers 3.38, if a non-Jew even approached the tabernacle, he would be put to death because the tabernacle represents holiness. And that's why Paul says over in 1 Corinthians how there are many, not just some, but many that are weak and sickly and even sleep picturing saved people that had no desire for repentance would break bread every Sunday and wouldn't confess their sins before breaking the bread and taking of the fruit of the vine and as a result were put to death. Every man's servant, verse 44, that is bought for money. This feeds into slavery and we will discuss this later down the line. When thou hast circumcised him, then shall he eat thereof. So you wanted to celebrate the Passover. You wanted to be a part of the Jewish community. You had to be circumcised. For today, if you are a Muslim boy, if you are a Jewish boy, you are automatically circumcised. If you find yourself an Islamic girl, there's a chance that you'll be mutilated. They call that female genital mutilation, FGM. Governments don't really want to touch it. Pressure groups don't really want to go there. They think of Islam as a race. Islam is a religion. Islam is an ideology. It's not a race. And these unsaved reprobates also from the left-wing secular atheist movement are terrified, just terrified to speak out against FGM. And yet, if you are a Christian, if you have any faith in scripture, if you stand on a street corner preaching, if you witness to people, they won't think twice to clip your wings They won't think twice to call you into the headmaster's office if your kids are saved or into the boss's office if you are a saved employee and give you a good dressing down. 
And yet, if you are an Islamic man, an Islamic woman, and you are mutilating your daughter, they wouldn't even dare question it. They wouldn't even dare go there. Because they know it's sensitive ground. They are terrified. Go to Colossians chapter 1. So back in the Old Testament, it was literal circumcision. It took place around eight days after the boy was born. Jesus Christ would be circumcised. All of the apostles were Jews. And it was part of their custom, as I say, to be circumcised. And that's why Moses was almost put to death earlier on from Exodus because he refused to circumcise his two sons. He was a backslider and his wife got a hold of a sharp knife, a stone of some kind, and she did it herself. She knew all about it. It wasn't just the Jews that circumcised their sons. Other groups would do so. But for the Jews, it had a huge significance. It was all about purity. It was all about being identified with the creator of the world. But for the New Testament, you've got a different type of a circumcision. Colossians chapter 1, Colossians chapter 1, look at verse 13. Who hath delivered us from the power of darkness, and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son. No works involved, no baptism, no confirmation, no speaking in tongues, in whom we have redemption through his blood, present tense, even the forgiveness of sins, unconditional, who is the image of the invisible God, the representation of the triune God. Old Testament, when deity appeared, it was Jesus Christ. New Testament, when deity appeared, it was Jesus Christ. And just for the record, God the Father does not have a body. God the Father does not have a soul. The Holy Ghost does not have a body. The Holy Ghost does not have a soul. Jesus Christ is the image of God, body, soul, and spirit. God the Father is a spirit, and the Holy Ghost is the spirit of the Lord, referred to as the Holy Ghost. Who is the image of the invisible God? You better quake. Every time somebody saw Jesus Christ with their physical eyes, they saw Almighty God. El Shaddai, El Gabor, Elohim, Jehovah Shalom, the firstborn of every creature, meaning in a preeminent sense, not in a chronological order. And we got a letter this week from somebody in Iceland, of all places, and he said uh, he was very unhappy with me. He said my remarks about the Jehovah's Witnesses, false witnesses, were inappropriate. And this man, a retired U.S. Air Force colonel or captain, is now living in Iceland. And he is uh, hanging around with the Jehovah's Witnesses, flirting with the JWs. And he's unhappy with yours truly. Because I make the case that the Jehovah's Witnesses are heretics for rejecting the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. They teach that he was Michael the Archangel. They teach he didn't die on a cross, but was nailed to a tree. And of course the term tree, which is found in the New Testament, simply denotes his cursed death. He died a cursed death. And the Jehovah's Witnesses are biblical literates. They don't know what it means to die a cursed death. They don't tie the tree from the New Covenant back to Absalom's cursed death in the Old Testament. And this man, very well educated, went to West Point probably, he doesn't know the difference between Michael, meaning who is God, or who is like God. Contrast that to Jesus, meaning Jehovah saves. And here's a guy with a good education. He doesn't know the difference between Michael and Jesus. And this guy is unhappy with me, and I will respond to him. But here, image of the invisible God concerning Jesus Christ, the firstborn of every creature in the context concerning his preeminence, not in reference to one's chronological appearance Onto the world stage. For by him, verse 16, were all things created. You can't beat that. That are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. That includes the angelic world. 
So out goes Michael, like who is like God, meaning that Jesus Christ made Michael. He made Gabriel. He made everything, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things, did you get that? All things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. So once again, Jesus Christ is almighty God. Every time you sin against God before you were saved or after you are saved, you are sinning and you have sinned against almighty God. And therefore only almighty God can forgive you. And of course, Jesus Christ is able to do that. 18, and he is the head of the body, not the Pope. And he is the head of the body, not John Calvin. And he is the head of the body, not the church fathers. And he, Jesus Christ, is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. Go back to Exodus chapter 12. So, the reason I took you to Colossians chapter 1 was to show you that you've got two circumcisions. And down the line, we will go even deeper into the delineations when it comes to circumcisions. Old Testament, literal, boys only. New Testament, spiritual, for boys and girls, men and women. Old Testament, it was done physically, with human hands. New Testament is done supernaturally with the hand of the Lord. Going back to works have no place when it comes to your salvation. 43 and 43 again and I'll move on. And the Lord, triune God, said unto Moses and Aaron, no doubt in Hebrew, this is the ordinance of the Passover. There's no stranger eat thereof. There shall no stranger eat thereof, meaning non-Jew for today. No unsaved person has any business breaking bread. Some years ago, I was speaking to a man who was connected to a brethren church in my town. He was being hired by this brethren church. This was many years ago. I was still somewhat green and naive. And we got talking, this chap and I, decent sort of a guy, Calvinist, unfortunately. And he said to me that he said, well, every Sunday, this church breaks bread. And I like you, James. I think you are on the level and he said I will be writing a letter to the elders of this church so that when you arrive on Sunday you can break bread that is a custom which you find back in the book of Acts letters were sent from persons A to persons B recommending that when somebody arrived they would be received with open arms and I appreciate why the brethren do that I'm not sure it's necessary but I do appreciate it and I arrived one Sunday morning and they knew that I was coming and they said yes such and such has written to us telling us that you are going to be joining us today welcome to the assembly brother and uh, you know enjoy yourself and I I stayed for maybe 50 minutes pretty dry service it was a dead church but I took the uh, bread breaking of the bread I took uh, the juice I participated in the communal service but if somebody was unsaved turned up they'd have no business being there and no business partaking of the communal service. Going back to my old reprobate friend many, many years ago who thought nothing of going to my local church once a year with his chum to take of the communion and drink the wine. And of course he did that thinking it was quite all right. And it wasn't. It wasn't. But every man's servant that is bought for money, slavery, you can't get around it. And yet if you think of slavery today or Going back to the 19th century, the error which has been perpetrated and uh, put out by schools, especially when I was at school, was how the white man went to Africa 
and took a load of black people, brought them back to the UK and America and elsewhere, and enslaved them. And the white man is the bogeyman. That, of course, is incorrect. What actually happened was wealthy blacks in Africa sold poor blacks to Arabs in the Middle East. And those good old Arabs in the Middle East, Mohammedans, of course, then sold them around the world. And even in America, back in the 18th, 19th century, you had wealthy black people owning poor black people. But of course, you won't hear much about that, will you? From, again, the pressure from the left wing, the very powerful left wing movement. So slavery, back in the Old Testament, feeding into the New Testament, was a whole different ball game. In fact, slaves, even going into Philemon, which I looked at last year, had many, many rights. You could be a doctor, you could be a legal expert, you could be a landowner. Going back to the time of the apostles, you had rights. In fact, many slaves had better rights than people who weren't slaves back in the ancient world. But if you think of what took place up until the 19th, early 20th century, those poor black people sold by rich black people via Muslims and then sold off around the world didn't have so many rights. But you won't hear much about that, will you? When thou hast circumcised him physically concerning men, not women, then shall he eat thereof. So that is the criteria. Literal circumcision for the New Testament, the new birth. Born again. So one final time, you have no business breaking bread if you're not born again. You have no business taking of the cup if you're not born again. And if you take of the cup, if you break bread and you are unsaved, Paul speaks about such people from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. But of course, in the context from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, those people were saved. And that's why they were sick and dying. They were abusing their bodies because their bodies were the temple of the Holy Ghost. 45. A foreigner and an hired servant shall not eat thereof. You see, it's strict. There's rules. You want to join a golf club? There are rules. You want to join a club? There are rules. You want to join the Freemasons, the Shriners, the Bilderbergers, the Illuminati? There are rules. And yet people think you can just go to heaven, everyone dies and goes to heaven, and there's no rules. There are rules. You've got to come via the sinless saviour. But for the Old Testament, you'd have to be circumcised, you'd have to be a Hebrew to partake of the Passover, which is going to feed into your salvation. For the New Testament, in one house shall it be eaten, thou shalt not carry forth aught of the flesh abroad out of the house, neither shall you break a bone thereof. So Jesus Christ was whipped, spat upon, nailed to a cross, not a tree, was held in a dungeon like Joseph, going back to verse 29, and after being dragged around the streets of Jerusalem around April time, Nisan, or Abib, A-B-I-B, he was hot, he was exhausted, he was dehydrated, nailed to a cross. I mean, does your God come anywhere near that? Let me ask you this, if you are a Muslim, what's the greatest thing that Allah has ever done for you? If you are a Catholic, what's the greatest thing the Pope has ever done for you? If you are a Buddhist, what's the greatest thing that Buddha has ever done for you? Think about it sometime and drop me a line. But here, a literal animal has to be held and uh, not a bone to be broken. So it's amazing that Jesus Christ was able to go through all of this, nailed to a cross, and not a bone was broken. And right at the end of his six hours on Calvary's cross, he was punctured with the spear. And to the shock of Pilate and others, he was dead already. And on top of that, not a bone was broken. But concerning the animal, struggling to get away, and Abraham got his hands on the animal back in Genesis, 
and killed it. And he said, one day the Lord will provide himself a lamb. And of course, he did that through Jesus Christ. But the animal was struggling, wanting to break free. Animals want to live. Animals want to breathe again. And here the animal has been restrained and killed because it's either the animal or it is you. That's all there is to it. Either you pay for your own sins or the animal pays for your sins. Old Testament, the animal would cover your sins. New Testament, the Lamb of God takes away your sins. 48. And when a stranger shall sojourn with thee, and will keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. And then let him come near and keep it. And he shall be as one that is born in the land. For no uncircumcised person shall eat thereof. Strict rules. Go to the airport. You want to go on holiday? Passport first. Cash. Sometimes a visa. You try and arrive at an airport with no passport, no cash, no visa. You're not going anywhere. Look at the World Cup last month. Or early this month. People from all over the world travelled to Russia. They needed a visa. Visas were issued all over the world. You didn't just turn up at the airport and say, get me to Moscow. Get me to St. Petersburg. I know the pilots. I'll have a chat with old Vladimir Putin. No, you had to apply sometimes weeks in advance via Russian consul generals or consulates to be precise. And they would examine your paperwork very carefully. Criminal record. Yes, no. Age, date of birth, occupation, so on and so forth. They're very careful as to whom they allow into their country, like other countries. But unfortunately for the UK, anybody is welcomed here. But the point is this, there are rules to travel around the world, and there will be rules to get into heaven. And of course, that goes back to somebody or something dying in your place. Someone or something shedding their blood. Because there is life in the blood. The blood is sacred. And of course, for us, it is Jesus Christ. Stranger shall sojourn with thee, Keep the Passover to the Lord. 48 again. Let all his males be circumcised. There's no such thing in the Old Testament of a woman being circumcised, being mutilated, going back to FGM. And if you hear about women, mainly Muslims, being mutilated, it's a terrible thing. It scars those women all of their lives. And I've seen interviews. The one group say, yes, I have been forever scarred. And they explain why. And the other group are in denial. And they say, no, it's quite all right. It hasn't affected me at all. And they are advocates for a wicked, brutal uh, custom because they are in denial. They don't dare speak out against it for fear of an honor killing. He shall be as one that is born in the land, going into the land of Canaan, not yet occupied. For no uncircumcised person shall eat thereof. No uncircumcised sinner shall enter into heaven. And then you look at Colossians chapter 1. It's already been dealt with through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. All you have to do is reach out as a beggar and receive the atonement. But here it's all about doing something. Faith without works is dead. If you love me, keep my commandments. At best, this is a picture of appropriating the atonement. Physically, back in the Old Testament, with one's physical hands. Again, New Testament, spiritually, Concerning the hands of the Lord. 49. One law shall be to him that is home born. And unto the stranger that sojourneth among you. Thus did all the children of Israel. As the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. So did they. So they were invited. Meaning the Jews. To enter into this covenant. They weren't coerced. They weren't forced. Which is what the Calvinists teach. Going back to irresistible grace. 
and they say that before a sinner has been regenerated, God uses irresistible grace, and once he does that, you can't resist it. That isn't scriptural. You had free will before you were saved. You have free will after you are saved. That's why you are told time after time to abstain from the appearance of sin. If you, don't, you, know, if you haven't got free will, or once you're saved, if you don't have free will, why does Paul tell you to be careful what you do and how you carry yourself? Because you still have free will and you are prone to do evil. Going back to Romans 7. And it came to pass the selfsame day that the Lord did bring the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their armies. This is all about the Lord. It's his land. It's his world. He is the landowner of the entire world. And when it suits him, he can kick out one group of people like the Jebusites, the Hittites and the Amorites. Just eradicate them. And allow his own people to move into the land. So some final points concerning Exodus chapter 12. And by the grace of God we've been able to spend five Sundays looking at this piece of Old Testament scripture. They were told from earlier verses to be aware of the first day. And of course the first day found in verse 16 is a picture of the first day of the week. The first day of the week has always been Sunday. Never mind what the SDA people tell you, or Roman Catholics, or other uh, conspiracy theorists. The first day of the week has always been Sunday. Jesus Christ came up out of the tomb the first day of the week. The early church met the first day of the week. The Holy Spirit descended the first day of the week after seven Sabbaths. Acts chapter 2. So therefore Pentecost was on a Sunday the Lord's Day is a Sunday. The breaking of bread is a Sunday. Jesus Christ, one last time, was raised from the dead. First day of the week being a Sunday. And the Holy Spirit came down from heaven. Heaven, First day of the week being a Sunday. Circumcision, back in the Old Testament, like I say, was literal. And if you want, you can spiritualize that and say that circumcision for the New Testament is one's baptism. That is problematic because for today, women are not circumcised. So you've got to be careful with that. I know why people say that. They say Old Testament circumcision is a picture of one's water baptism for today. But how about the women that are saved today? If physical circumcision uh, from the Old Testament is a picture of one's water baptism for the New Testament, how does that work? Because no woman in the Old Testament, as far as I'm aware, was ever physically circumcised. That's brutal. That's monstrous. As of course you are a Muslim, following Muhammad. But of course they aren't the people of God. But you can in a sense, in a limited sense, suggest that circumcision for the Old Testament is pictured as one's water baptism for the New Testament. But be mindful that women in the Old Testament weren't circumcised. And therefore, how does that fit in with them for today? Circumcision for today is spiritual, like I say, supernatural. And yes, once you are baptized, you are simply demonstrating that you are already saved. But also circumcision found in Colossians chapter 1 will have some application for the millennial reign. The Lord's final Passover would take place on a Thursday, making his crucifixion on a Wednesday around 3 p.m. Now, you are told from Exodus chapter 12 that the animal, whether a lamb or a goat, was to be held for four days before it was put to death and technically from Wednesday evening 3 p.m. until 6 p.m. 
Jesus Christ is not only dead, but he's in the tomb. And he's there for three days, three nights. He's in the heart of the earth, and I mean hell, not Hades. And no, he wasn't burning up, unlike what the heretic uh, Stephen Anderson teaches. Jesus Christ was not burnt in hell. He wasn't the first born-again man, which is what Joyce Mayer teaches. Yes, he went into hell, and I mean literal hell, to set captivity captive. But remember this, there are two compartments to hell. Abraham's bosom and the rich man, so on and so forth. And he goes into the lower parts of the earth. That's found three times in the Pauline epistles. And he sets captivity captive. So for three days and three nights, if my dates are correct, from Wednesday afternoon until dawn, Sunday morning, that is three days and three nights. But also that covers a four-day cycle. Strictly speaking, it's four days, but it's three days and three nights. If you understand how the Jews count their day, their day begins at 6 a.m., say dawn, whereas our day begins at midnight. The Jewish Sabbath would officially end at sundown on Saturday. So Jesus Christ is three days and three nights in the heart, in the heart of the earth, and the animal is held for four days, and then after four days, its throat is cut. Jesus Christ is technically detained in the heart of the earth for four days. Again, but if you understand how the Jews count their days, evening and morning was the first day, evening and the morning were the second day, evening and the morning were the third day, then you understand where I'm going with this. Also from verse 39, the Jews were in a rush to leave, and it speaks about them departing from Ramses, Ramus, from verse 37, which is spelt different ways, I should say, and also pronounced different ways. Ramses, Ramus, and if you are somebody who used to watch Neighbours many, many years ago, there was a street called Ramsey Street. I thought about that this morning, I thought it was very interesting, Ramsey Street, but Ramus, Ramesis, a play on words, Sukkoth, or Sukkoth, and it speaks about their treasure cities, and if you think of people who say this, they say, look at his trophy wife, she's a beautiful Six foot one, blonde hair, beautiful white teeth. Why is she hanging around with that old, little, fat, bald man? Because he is a billionaire. That was a joke made about Onassis and also Rupert Murdoch. But the point is this. Trophy wife, treasure cities found back in the book of Exodus. And therefore the Jews are going to leave in a rush. But Paul says, New Testament, how my God shall supply all your need which is cross-referenced back into the Old Testament. The Jews are going to wander for 40 years, and the Lord, and I mean the Lord, would sustain them. Which goes back one more time to your new birth, how you got saved. Before I was conceived, I had no say in when I would be born, what sex I would be, where I would be born, what colour I would be, when, how, or even what purpose I would be born. My physical birth is similar to my spiritual birth. Totally dependent on my Lord and my God, whereas my physical birth, it was totally dependent on my father and mother. You can't work your way into heaven. At best, the Old Testament Jews were preparing for their sins to be one day totally eradicated. The Jews start off with around 70 people, and by 1237, you've got around 2 million. 2 million people... And if you think of Luke 10 again, which I mentioned last week, the Lord says 70 elders, 70 disciples, and from 70 at the 12, that gives you 82, and at most 120 from Acts chapter, Acts chapter 1. From 120, 
say up until the end of the second century, you've got around one and a half million Christians all over the Roman Empire. The animal was to be sacrificed for today. We will eat and drink Jesus in a figurative sense because our atonement is completed. When the millennial reign comes around, the feast days will be uh, recommenced. The third temple is going to be rebuilt. And it's my belief, don't quote me, but it's my belief that the temple mentioned over in the book of, uh, book of uh, Revelation, Revelation 11 from memory, doesn't quite match the temple found over in Ezekiel. But it's my belief that the temple that is built once a church has been removed Uh, Revelation chapter 11 doesn't get destroyed during the seven year period because that temple is going to be used throughout the thousand year reign of Christ. And the feast days are going to be reinitiated in a sense that we break bread every Sunday. We break bread in remembrance of what Christ did for us. And during the thousand year reign of Christ, the new earth specifically, where the saved Jews are resurrected, they will once again re-sacrifice and reinitiate the Uh, feast days in uh, remembrance as to what their messiah did for them so firstborn concerning uh, jesus christ is his preeminence not in reference to one's chronological birth and i wanted to show you that because again circumcision was physical for the old testament light works whereas our circumcision for the new testament is spiritual supernatural like grace But the Jews were expected to do what they would have to do. The feast days were only for the Jews. No Gentiles were permitted. Going back to Numbers 3.38. And yet today churches are filled with unsaved people. Hanging around with saved people. Receiving communion. Going back to that old reprobate friend of mine. Who thought nothing of going to Mass every Christmas time. Never once challenged. And he was blaspheming God, not because of the church service that he was hanging around in. That's a false church, but because of what it represents. It is sacred. It's the death of our Lord. It's the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. So I think that pretty much covers everything from uh, chapter 12, 51 verses. You will be surprised to know that it has taken around two and a half hours over the last Uh, five Sundays to faithfully and methodically go through these verses Uh, verse 51 it speaks about their armies physical armies they will have to fight and just for the record there are no pacifists back in the old testament if you were a Jew back in the old testament you had to fight for your country and on top of that the priests would have to fight as well and yet if you think of catholic priests today going back probably 100 years many of those men are pacifists, refuse to fight, and they are obviously against scripture. They f- claim to follow the scripture, but when you check them out in light of scripture, they are pacifists for the most part. They are into CND, they are into nuclear disarmament, they are into third world affairs, so on and so forth. But for the Old Testament, literal people, literal constitution, a literal priesthood, sacrificing literal animals... No Catholic priest will sacrifice an animal during Mass today. And for the Old Testament, the priests would march with the people, would fight with the people. David was a priest, prophet, and king. And as a priest, he killed many people. And this is where Catholics pick and choose which parts of Scripture they want. And yes, Protestants also 
Many Protestant vicars and pastors like Bonifa and others were pacifists, refused to fight. And there are many that I could think to name this morning. But the point is this. Only one church, quote unquote, claims to be apostolic. Only one church claims to be a true representation or a true follower, a true presence of God on this earth. And that one church, quote unquote, is a Catholic church. And yet when you check them out, they don't match up with scripture in fact i'll tell you one other thing very quickly when the priest went into the tabernacle aaron and his sons leading up to phineas and beyond they weren't allowed to drink wine and one of the reasons why the lord killed aaron's sons was because they were drunk and it says how they offered up strange fire and the text is very clear that priests in the temple in the tabernacle weren't allowed to drink wine and yet what do catholic priests do every mass they drink wine literal wine and many priests that we know and have known over the years have been alcoholics mm-hmm. in fact one priest we knew died last week he was 76 mm-hmm. a good friend of patrick's an irishman a very troubled man 50 years in the church of rome and we tried to witness to him were unsuccessful he retired maybe two or three years ago he was a notorious alcoholic and on one occasion he was so drunk he was seen running outside the presbytery one a.m in the pouring rain naked and one of his uh, parishioners saw him reported him to the bishop the bishop sent one of his senior uh, colleagues a canon no less and he arrived at this guy's church and he said father such and such we've had reports that you've been drunk intoxicated again violating the old testament which they claim to follow and we don't think this is right so and so forth and this old friend of the family he said to this canon who are you to tell me what to do you too are a notorious alcoholic. There was a standoff. There was a standoff. Two alcoholics arguing over this one priest's conduct. And I thought to myself, what did his church do for him? What did it do for him? 50 years, dies last week or week before last, 76, 77, 50 years, a Catholic priest, went through the whole system, was ridiculed for being Irish, was mocked because of his lack of education, was made to feel like an imbecile, was shunned because of his lack of Latin, and he went through the whole system, a terrible alcoholic, and what did his church do for him? Nothing. And he died almost broke, probably in an old priest's home, and tragically, as I say, he died a couple of weeks ago. Well, if that's Catholicism, keep it. But that priesthood, as far as I am concerned, violates the Old Testament, and is an abomination as far as the New Testament is concerned. If you are born again, you are a spiritual priesthood. Whether male or female, you are a priest of the Lord. That doesn't mean that women can have services, read the scriptures, of course not. There's still rules and regulations concerning the differences of genders. But the point is this, if you are born again, you are a priest of the Lord. Male or female, you don't need to have uh, a priesthood over you telling you what you can and cannot do so i think we'll leave it there and god willing next week uh, return to exodus chapter 13